0: After the Moplah riots, Gandhi advised that um, essentially, even though uh, the Hindus had been butchered, the best thing they could do was forget it. In order to keep the peace between communities, Hindus essentially had no right to strike back. Uh, so then Ramana Maharishi is silent and then he turns his head and opens his eyes and looks at Paul Brunton. And Paul Brunton writes that in that moment when the master looked at him, he felt all his questions disappear and there were no other questions left. And you know, see, is, even as I see it,
1: it's giving me good say this, it's giving me goosebumps. But is there nothing redeeming about Nehru or Gandhi mm. or is it that enough time has passed? Mm. And because they've been in limelight for so long, mm. even the skeletons are coming out of the closet.
0: So somebody once went up to Patel and said you know you deal with all these business people and money and all of that Gandhi ji is not happy about this you know because this is not dealing with all these capitalists and so on. so Patel said Gandhi is Mahatma I am not Mahatma I have to run the party so taste what we call taste is only the final frontier but taste is a byproduct of aesthetics aesthetics is a byproduct of wisdom because, what is aesthetics? Aesthetics is knowing not only what you want to consume, but what you should consume.
1: Yo, what is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of Those Cast. My name is Vinam Kasana. In case you're not subscribed to the podcast or don't follow it on Spotify, please do that right away because we release new episodes every Tuesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Indian Standard Time without fail. Today's guest. And today's conversation is a landmark in the history of Indian podcasting. It's a landmark in the history of this podcast, at least. I've had the pleasure of hosting Hindal Gupta on the podcast. He's the author of 11 books. He's a Shevening scholar. I'm just gonna read out his education and then his background to give you an idea of the kind of depth you're about to expect. He did a, uh, he did an MA in mass communication from uh, Jamia Millia Islamia. Then he was a night big, big hot fellow in business and economics at Columbia University. Then he's a doctor of international relations and affairs at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Then he's also done an M- M- He's also done an MSc in Modern South Asian Studies uh, from University of Oxford. He started his career as a principal correspondent at CNN, IBN, CNBC TV18. Then then an associate editor at Bloomberg UTV. Then a senior fellow at Center for Civil Society. Then at the ORF Observer Research Foundation as the senior fellow. Then he also served as the chief economic research officer at Invest India, the primary investing arm of the Indian government. He's also a young global leader at World Economic Forum. He's also an advisor at World Health Organization, WHO. He's also spent 14 years as the columnist, editor-at-large, and senior editor at Fortune India, one of the most coveted magazines in the world. Right? He's also a columnist at the New Indian Express, columnist at First Post, co-founder of Global Order, and very recently co-founder of Grin, which is an online platform on the intersection of science, spirituality, entrepreneurship, and the foreign policy and globalization platform. The list of his achievements and accolades are endless, and the conversation is around taste, luxury, political Hinduism. Narendra Modi, Vajpayee, Nehru, the usual suspects, but done in a way that will blow your mind, the conversation with Hindal Sengupta around his book, Soul and Sword, The History of Political Hinduism, and many, many other rivetic topics, begins in 3, 2, 1. Um, uh. So it's, it's only after that, that uh. I began to get interested. And then once I realized he. My reality as a Hindu, yeah. first of all, is very unarticulated. Sure. Right? Um, yeah. It's largely carried out through rituals, and mm-hmm. I only have to refer to my faith or my culture when I'm in a dilemma of sorts. Yeah. Right? Um, but then I realize that I am the anomaly, because unlike me, many younger people, yeah. and you mention this in the book, like younger yeah. people who are like aggressively trying to understand the yeah. Hindu identity, um, are... Are way different than I am, and and they they know. So you know, ten
0: years ago, I wrote a book called Being Hindu. Yes, I I kid you not. Almost every week, I get a message on some platform by someone of your age, yeah. slightly younger, slightly older. You know, within a band, yeah, writing to me saying that they read the book, and they loved it, and they you know taught them so much and whatever. And that book almost did not get published. Finally, won the Wilbur Award. It's you know that Wilbur yes, Award that mentioned yes. that's being Hindu. It almost didn't get published in India because publishers were like, "Oh, why should we publish a book on Hinduism?" There's that. It was a like it was hilarious. But it's been ten years. We're about to celebrate. You know, it's tenth uh, anniversary next year. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so this this kind of hunger is absolutely there. Yeah,
1: yeah, and so much so that. Um it's gaining such a wide foothold yeah. that, you know, even if I have someone who's going to explain the Gita or yeah. the Mahabharata, there are people fighting in the comments. Um, and this was, these were uh, genres that were largely taken up by people who are much older than us, our parents yeah. and grandparents. Yeah, are, are, exactly. I mean, I still, I say it and I get so much hate for this. My understanding of the Ramayana and Mahabharat are fragmented stories that my father told me. Never actually picked it up. Never mm. found a reason to pick it up. Um, and the full Ramayana that I ever saw was Yugo Saku's Ramayan, the, mm. the animated Ramayan. It's so beautiful. It? It's so good. It's so beautiful. It's so elegantly shot. The, yeah. the music. the yeah. it's, So imagine that. So as a generation of non-Ram Ram, Ram Charitvana's readers and uh, not in, even engaging with the secondary research around this. All of a sudden, we're in this world where everyone is talking about this. But there's a reason for that. And if you want, we can discuss this in our conversation. So that's a very
0: good question. I think we're at a very interesting juncture. So the next question to this is why? You know, why are so many people suddenly interested, right? Hmm. Why do they care? You're right. I mean, um, I also grew up in an India where, you know, people, I mean, especially the young people didn't bother so much about religion and stuff. And they were far more interested in all the things we were talking about, you know, which brands to buy, how much money to make, which job to have, you know, where to go for a date, all of these things, right? But there's been a sea change. And, you know, culturally, there's been a sea change. But there is a reason for that. And there is historical example in other parts of the world where this happens, right? Right. Um, You know, even the film that you mentioned, you know, the Japanese Ramayana, right? Why is it so beautiful? You know, our question is, How did this Japanese filmmaker come to India, pick up this text, and was able to really understand its emotions? Mm. You know what is beautiful about it. Animation is beautiful, sure. Yeah. But it really gets all the nuances of emotion.
1: Yeah, and this uh, is after Japan. Japan doesn't really have a devotional god at its center. No. Right. I mean, they've made anime. They've come, I'm being very ignorant, but they've also made Samurai stuff. They've made martial movies, martial anime movies, but not necessarily anything with gods at the center.
0: Though Japanese culture is full of, like in Hinduism, there are gods for everything. Right. There are lots and lots of these deities, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one uh, book I recommend
1: to you, which you might enjoy, uh, do you read Pico Ayer's work? I have. I just read uh, the sample on Kindle. Pico Ayer yeah. in Iran, right? Yeah, I forget the book, name of the book, but his it's his uh, whole journey into Iran. He's staying at a hotel. A bunch of things happen. Yeah.
0: So read a book called. Uh, read the Jap- Japan books of his. You know, one is called The Lady and the Bunk, uh-huh. and the other is called um, Autumn Light. Okay. Um. There. So Pico Ayer basically first goes to Japan as a Time magazine journalist. But then subsequently uh, becomes the partner of a Japanese woman who, in fact, leaves her sort of marriage that didn't work. And there's a lot of really beautiful descriptions of Japanese everyday living. You know, why do the Japanese do what they do? Mm -hmm. Right. And when you read it, you'll realize this is so similar to India.
1: Why was, that? so I, I only discovered Pico Ayer because of uh, Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. It's yeah. the art of long-term world travel at a yeah. time when I was contemplating that. Yeah. So I did some of that in Spain and in the UK for two months. And he recommended reading Pico Ayer yeah. because the number of times he quoted Pico Ayer in the book uh, surpasses any other author. So I actually picked it up and I realized it must be so wonderful to be a travel journalist and travel the world yeah. and it's like your life is your writing in any yeah. other genre you have to pick a feel that is some yeah. sometimes dry or have to pick up a genre, but travel writing also inevitably embeds you inside yeah. the story, so I found that very interesting
0: so we can talk about ir also yeah. you know, we are rolling Pico-Ire. by the way huh we are rolling i know yeah. i we be rolling
1: yeah I, I sprung that upon you they they yeah they started the my, the cameras yeah. oh really yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh
0: that's funny well, you know the interesting thing about ir is that you know when I was a you know student and Um, I picked up Pico Iyer because I was a young journalist. And one of his first books that made him really famous is a book called Video Nights in Kathmandu. Yes. Right? And he sort of goes here, goes there. And, you know, Pico Iyer is the person who came up with this entire thing that, you know, in in the liberalized global world, people lead lives in airports, so to speak, right? But remember, (laughs) but here's the thing, and I often say this in my economic lectures, Peak began there. And by the time globalized, we began to. And, you know, those were the days when Tom Friedman would tell us, look, the world is flat, mm-hmm. which is completely wrong. It's wrong in so many ways. I mean, I knew that even before I studied economics, that it's right. not possible. So Tom, Tom Friedman's theory was that, oh, look, if cultures begin to resemble each other in certain uh, choices that they make, and his choices were very, really you know, a, you know very sort of basic level. Everybody mm. wears blue jeans. Everybody has McDonald's. Sure. You know, there was this theory that Golden Arches theory that yeah. if two countries have McDonald's, then they don't go to war, which is absolutely wrong. I can't even believe that we actually believe this
1: bullshit. I'm sure both Palestine and Israel have McDonald's. Just
0: I, it is such bullshit. It's not yeah. even funny, right? I mean, it's just wrong. I don't know. Can we say bullshit? In yeah, a, yeah, of course. A, of course. Okay, all right. I mean, uh, you look at that. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny though. But anyway, <laughs> um, so that's totally wrong. And Pico Iyer, after going everywhere and traveling here, there finally began to write about the art of stillness. Hmm. And he began to write about, there's this beautiful book he wrote where he goes with Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. And Leonard Cohen, again, who's been there, done that, uh, you know, yeah. uh, everything possible he has done, became a disciple to a Zen master. And spent time at the at a hut, you know, in the mountains, serving the Zen master. And then Pico Iyer began to write about his family's association with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, right? And then he, you know, then this whole Japan thing happened. Pico Iyer's house in California burnt down, mm-hmm. you know, his his, uh, um, and he was left homeless. So all roads led east. All Roads led East. And now, today, Pico Ayer writes
1: about the inner self. Oh, is he alive? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I had no idea. I had no idea. But do but you uh, think that's a consequence of, like, uh, people having an artistic career or spanning across the world, tireless, right? And then eventually realizing that yeah. it, it, is, it is more a s- symbolic of older age as opposed to, hmm. like, a thematic change in their life.
0: Yeah. I think it's a bit of both. Um, and especially in cultures like ours, since we're sitting in India, Hmm. I think people discover at some point that once you go everywhere and do everything, right, that the change you're seeking is only possible as an internal journey and not an external journey. Now, this is nothing new. What I'm saying is no great wisdom from me. This has been said for thousands of years. You know, you go back to the... To the Vedanta literature, the Upanishads say exactly this. And Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. Hmm. Why be the change you want to see? Well, if you change from within, the world will change from outside, so to speak. Right Now, this wisdom has come back in vogue, so to speak. Because today, more than ever before, when Gandhi said, this, you know, Gandhi's handler wasn't tweeting 15 times every second saying (laughs) Mahatma Gandhi, you know, lifting uh, light Mahatma Gandhi, whatever, walking two steps. Today, we are in a world where everything has been so externalized. Mm. And let me explain what I mean by that. And I feel this too. I see my, you know, I don't have children, but, you know, I see my niece and so on and so forth. What was your sense of validation when you were young? Perhaps it came from your parents saying, oh, you did something nice. Your grandparents saying, beta, you did something, whatever. Mm. Maximum, there would have been your school friends or whatever, your childhood friends, you know, whatever. You guys did something fun. Today, at a minute-to-minute basis, we have externalized our validation.
1: Yeah.
0: So the food you eat must be validated by some unknown whatever, right? The places you go to, it's almost like people have, you know, I i, I was saying my niece this time that people have forgotten, your generation has forgotten to see things. Yeah. Because before you can actually see a beautiful place, you put a camera in front of you, right? Because you're seeking this validation, but that validation has a deep flip side because when you don't get that your anxiety will you know supersede anything else you've ever found that's why mental health cases are on the rise that's why there's so much you know turmoil in the world and you know internal turmoil in the world that's why this whole thing that the final answer is still within you and it's a journey yeah. that you want to traverse. In fact, funnily enough that we're talking about this, I was just before coming here, I was reading Paul Brunton, you know.
1: I haven't heard of the gentleman. So
0: Paul Brunton was an English traveler, since you're talking about traveling. Mm. And he came to India before independence. He came to India when, um, you know, at a very different time when we were still under British rule. Um, and um, he landed up going to the ashram of Ramana Maharishi. Hmm. Uh, You know, the hill of Arunachala, right? Um, And there's this wonderful thing. uh, And he writes about this in the book. It's called Search for Secret India, I think. And then Paul Brunton subsequently wrote a whole bunch of other books about meditation and this, that and the other. So Paul Brunton was an English traveler. He had all these questions. The world was in turmoil. You know, wars were all around. Conflict was all around. Quite like our world today. And he was told that there is this sage who sits upon this hill. Why don't you go? And he said, so what does the sage do? And he says, he doesn't say anything. And he was, he, as an Englishman, he was like, that makes no sense. Yeah, And
1: you want answers as an Englishman trying to find the meaning of life in India? Of course you want answers. Yeah, of course, and you want somebody to give you those answers, yeah, right? Yeah. So he said, okay, fine, I'm here,
0: I'll go, right? So he goes up. And Paul Brunton writes that He had written, or he had a whole series of questions to ask. You know, what's going to happen to the world? You know, will we survive war? This, that, all kinds of things, right? So he enters the room where Ramana Maharishi is sitting. And you know, the, the master used to sit on this, whatever, and just meditate. He was largely silent. He never said much. And his eyes was closed and then Paul Brunton sits before him. And uh, then, you know, he says, I want to ask these questions. Then he rattles off all these questions. Kya hoga, uska kya hoga, whatever. So then Ravana Maharishi is silent and then he turns his head and opens his eyes and looks at Paul Brunton. And Paul Brunton writes that in that moment when the master looked at him, he felt all his questions disappear. And there were no other questions left. And you know, see, even as I see it, it's giving me good, say this, it's giving me goosebumps. But he felt the questions melt away. Because after looking at him, the master said to him, you know, Ramana Maharishi said to him, who is the one who's asking these questions? And Paul Brunton realized that he didn't know who was the person asking these questions fundamentally. And the master said to him, find out who is the person asking these questions and then you will find the answers. And I think that is such an incredible story and it's such an eternal story, uh, you know, which transcends ages. And it's so perfect for our time uh, that, you know, it just speaks to me again and again. You know, I wrote about, this reminds me, if you don't mind, um, I wrote about Srila Prabhupada, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Srila Prabhupada had this thing where if people were trying to poke him, you know, because he was in America and he was an elderly man, you know, all these journalists would ask him some random questions when he didn't want to answer the question he would just say doesn't matter you just chant Hare Krishna and you know suddenly I remembered that you know this so what is he saying when he says just go and chant Hare Krishna he's saying you know you first do the inner work and then we will see yeah. what to do with your questions
1: yeah it's funny how most masters across the world they you see their stories or hear their stories through the eyes of their disciples there's almost a common thread where the disciple is rejected at first because the inner work hasn't been done and throughout the journey, once the you inner know, work has been done, at the end, the person realizes they didn't need the master, they needed the master to shide them, right? But I wanna bring back an, another thread that you mentioned, right? The externalizing of things. I've mm. been noticing it so much. I'm in this career. Mm. And um, it's almost like your self-esteem is also externalized, right? Because you mentioned capturing space, spaces and places and new things through your phones as opposed to through your eyes. Uh, I made a deliberate rule to just let some things be for my eyes and memories and let them fade away, right? That means deleting old photographs sometimes or letting go just because to get those out of me, you have to sit around a fire or meet me someday. And then I have to sort of jog my memory and hopefully get back some of my dopamine receptors from all the over frying and tell you those stories. Um, but this this whole idea of being internally content, how does it you know work out in a world like this where it's almost like you want to broadcast every moment and be like David Perel, the writer says, you're tuned into the ever-present now at all times with all feeds. How do you then, even for your example, because you've written so many books and that requires a degree of aloneness, that requires a degree of your gray matter not being disrupted by a random tweet that comes in. How do you find that and then maintain that throughout while still engaging in this world? Because even while we deny uh you know the, the even though we will say and and there's nothing to do with it uh, uh, the world is only going to move to this direction
0: so the world will probably move in multiple directions yes you're absolutely right that the world will largely move in this direction, but I think simultaneously the world is also moving in a different direction in the sense that more people than ever are seeking something that they cannot find and are you know therefore this growth of you know in America they call it SBNR
1: mm-hmm. spiritual right?
0: but not religious spiritual but not religious and here's this large volume ever growing volume of people who either call themselves SBNR or atheist or whatever but they are constantly engaging to try and find the answers
1: mm-hmm. therefore
0: yoga is growing therefore healthy living is growing and you see this is the thing right I mean in, in our worldview, uh, detoxing doesn't begin just with you giving up certain kinds of food. Detoxing is a holistic detoxing. Right. You know, there was this uh, monk recently um, from uh, the Krishna Consciousness Movement, and he and I were having a conversation. And he said, you know, many years ago, there was a man who really was very keen, a young monk, very keen to understand Sri Chaitanya, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ideas, you know, the great uh, Bengal monk, you know, the Gauriya Vaishnavite tradition, the man who really began singing and dancing on the streets of Bengal, right? And he went to one of these Oxbridge colleges where there was supposedly a scholar, right? And he said, Oh, wow, this is amazing. This man must know so much. Let me go and ask him. So he went to this man's room, and he was a professor. And that professor said, "Yes, yes, come, let's discuss Chaitanya." And he pulled out a cigar, and he had some scotch, and so on and so forth, and poured it, and you know, began to smoke. And then he was giving all this sort of, you know, fundas, as we would call it, about you know Chaitanya's philosophy. And that young monk realized at one point that this man only understood these things at an intellectual level. Mm. He knew all the right theories and the words and the research and so on and so forth. But there was a deep heartland of emotion in that whole universe of bhakti philosophy, you know, Chaitanya's bhakti philosophy, which he doesn't understand. And unless you understand that, you will only understand it at a particular level. You know, that's really one of my challenges and I'll I'll share this with you. When I wrote Being Hindu, um, you know, I have a dear friend who, uh, in fact, the book is dedicated to, uh, who's very spiritual minded, who told me that one of the biggest challenges that I will face as I do more and more of this kind of writing is, will it always remain at an intellectual level?
1: Mm.
0: And that has forever stayed with me for the last decade. And therefore, I have tried my level best, you know, to go down a very different path. Like there are many things. I mean, it's, it's funny. I've never discussed these things in podcasts or interviews before. But I have tried to, in many ways, eradicate a lot of things that would keep me only to the intellectual level of these things. Because that's very self-defeating. If I understand bhakti only... To, to be able to write a paper that will get published in some journal or a book that will you know people will read then it's a great disservice forget it's a great disservice to the readers it's mm-hmm. a great disservice to me i can only do justice to myself and to people who read my work if i truly try to delve into the idea of sharnagati you know it's very easy to say sharnagati but especially for people who have Arrogance about intellect being intellectual, Mm -hmm. I include myself in that. Giving up and truly understanding surrender to the divine is very, very tough because you're used to thinking my mind is the most important thing, right? right? I know what's going on and I will do this and I will solve that. Whereas in the spiritual process, the first thing to understand is that you know, this is an illusion of control, right? It's it's like Kung Fu Panda, right? It's like, you know, did you, have you seen Kung Fu Panda? I have. I have. Do you remember that scene where uh you know Master Shifu uh you know and 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 you know this um says that you know you only have an illusion of control. Hmm. You can hit the tree and a fruit will fall, but you have no control. On, you know, you can just plant the seed, but you have no control what tree it would be and what seed and when it'll fall, right? We only have an illusion of control. And there is a lovely clip of that online called The Illusion of Control, right? So we all have an illusion of control. And I think if, in order to do the work that I do, if I keep it only at an intellectual level, I'm doing great disservice. Like I have been to more temples and shrines for devotional purpose. Yeah. After I starting to write this, than I had ever done so before.
1: So You were yourself transformed into not just a scholar or an intellectual, but yeah. also a someone who was open to the idea of faith and devotion. As a
0: practitioner. Yeah. As a practitioner, I chant, I meditate, I have tried in many and ways then to.
1: Was there was there awkwardness? It's like the the lab's Catholic comes home.
0: Uh, No, because um, maybe yes and no. Hmm. Let me explain that. Um, You know, I came, my parents are very devout, you know, especially my mother's side and so on and so forth. So going to temples, going to Ramakrishna Mission, Vivekananda, all of this was always part of our lives. But the thing is, one never engaged much with that because you see the entire point when one was growing up was that which job will you get? Hmm. How much money will you make out of it? Which university will you go to? That framework was so deeply embedded. Mm -hmm. All of this was not part of that framework. But once I started writing about things like this, I really felt very deeply from within that there's no point in me trying to do this intellectually alone. That's a great disservice. Like today, for instance, you know, I go to festivals and I mean, I went to Goa, you know, and Mm -hmm. that was not even for a festival. That was to meet my sister who now lives there. And I found myself, you know, going to a a Mahadev temple deep into the forests of South Goa, very deep there. And I didn't even go to a beach, to be honest. (laughs) And nobody told me to do that. I was on holiday. But I just felt it. And, And I think if you are open to it, this transformation is inevitable. It is truly inevitable. I know this from my own life. This transformation is inevitable. I have never, when I go to a new city, like this time also, I went to Bhubaneshwar for a festival. I always go to that Ananta Vasudeva temple and go and have bhog there. And obviously, the, you know, the organizers are constantly telling me, you know, let's go to this restaurant, it's very good, and this, that, and the other. But I want to. Hmm. I genuinely feel something from within, and I want to. And I'm trying to explain to you that this process is inevitable if one is open to it. If you want to delve into this kind of matter. You know, um, if one doesn't and does it at
1: a very perfunctory level, then the work will only go so deep. It will not go further. Yeah, I have a little story. Then we can talk about yeah. how even enabling, you know, your, your your worship has been enabled by also a structure that now allows you to be a public worshiper where yeah. where there is or there a whole ecosystem, political yeah. and otherwise, that sure. allows you to openly sure. do it in, in the safety and confines of not feeling judged as yeah. one would earlier. Yeah. Um, I obviously grew up in a religious family like most Hindus do and um, I I, I was a very devout kid at that time and then of course at 13, 14 you discover rock and roll and like everything else so this whole questioning a teenage questioning begins to happen Um, and then I came to faith much later on in my life but the whole temple worshipping thing really really happened once I started uh, reading stories of demigods and and the shun gods in hinduism particularly kali shani Mm. all of these gods i really found them fascinating Mm. and then so when i read the stories i read so many stories not heard them through through some loss in oral translation by a by a by a you know grandparent or or a parent i ended up really enjoying the temple i I enjoyed Mm. going and worshiping the deities seeing seeing the the way Shani is uh, adorned with the mm. with the oil, right? The way he's sitting on his uh, on his uh, I don't know what what do you call it? garuda. He's probably sitting on his garuda. I'm not sure. I, I could mess this up, right? But it's it was so fascinating to, to finally have intellect meet faith, mm. right? And I think one of the reasons why most of people like me shunned or didn't look at faith the way they were supposed to is because we just saw faith in our parents' generations we didn't see so much intellect attached to the faith. Mm. It was always like, mm. aisa hai. Ho surrender kero. And I think that wasn't enough for us, but now it's changed. So what's also fascinating then is you are doing this at a time in, in our country when mm. the first thing you mentioned in the book is this book is about Political Hinduism, not faith Hinduism, faith-based Hinduism—that as most people know themselves as, right? So uh, it's called Soul and Sword: The History of Political Hinduism. It's out now; has been out for a while. Why make that distinction? Hmm. Because in this
0: book, it was very clear that I wanted to tell the story of what we call—you know—it was a project of intellectual history, as it were. This book is about. Political Hinduism, because if it was a book on Hinduism, that's a vast, vast, vast canvas. This was about, let me make the distinction. Look, all faith is finally um, an inner change, right? Now, if you or I were to go sit in a distant cave or even in a, you know, whatever space and did whatever spiritual practices we did and didn't really engage with the world, Mm -hmm. that could still be called personal, right? But no faith is finally personal because faiths have to interact with the world, right? They have to interact with society. When faiths interact with society, then inevitably those faiths have a political engagement. Because at the end of the day, society brings politics. And the book Soul and Sword was to explain India's moment today. Mm. Of a um, dominant political ideology, of political Hinduism, uh, and its history. And um, most people begin that story with, uh, you know, Savarkar, or maybe a little bit uh, uh, ahead of that, Chandranath Basu, and so on and so forth. But, you know, as a Bengali, I realized, because I'm also translating Anandamat. And and this happened completely by accident. I was reading Anandamad because I'm translating it line by line, word by word for a new translation. And I suddenly came upon the word Hindutva. And I realized that the first time the word Hindutva had been used is in the same book by Bankim Chandra Mm Chattopadhyay, which gave us Vande Mataram, Mm -hmm. which then belies a whole wealth of analysis which says political Hinduism was some fringe thing whereas the mainstream was something else. And I was like, no, that's not true. In fact, political Hinduism, for most part, especially before the arrival of the Indian National Congress and Gandhi, political Hinduism was a dominant, uh, you know, ideology, a dominant idea. Many of the people during the Renaissance and afterwards who spoke about, you know, India's rejuvenation, reawakening, spoke in terms of, uh, spoke with, a sort of um, Hindu grammar, a Hindu uh, canvas, so to speak, right? Uh, And they were not suggesting at all that others did not count in this canvas. But they were saying that, look, at the end of the day, nations have cultural essences, Mm -hmm. right? America is a Christian nation, Yes. It is welcoming of everyone. You can be whoever you want to be and live in America and have your shrine, do your worship, do whatever you want to do, right? Mm. But at its very core, when America says, in God we trust, which God are they talking about? Jesus Christ. Of course, right? In England, David Cameron openly used to say in his Easter messages, we're a Christian country. We are welcoming of every faith, Beautiful mosques and temples and gurdwaras have been built in our country. All of these communities rejoice in our country and have full freedom. But at the very core, our cultural essence is that we are a Christian country. All faiths, similarly, are welcome. And we, of course, have a much greater history of diversity in our country. But at our very core, our foundational ideas come from the Vedas and the Upanishads. Mm -hmm. And they are by their very nature, the word Hindu comes much later, but you know, they are you know part of our Sanatan framework, our Hindu framework. That does not, this is always misunderstood to say, oh, look, this is this is gonna keep away other people. No, it doesn't. You know, Savarkar at the end of Essentials of Hindutva says that once you immerse yourself in this culture, you stop even remaining part of Hinduism. What does he mean? He means this ism part of it falls off. Hmm. Right? You realize, see, ism is again a, a sort of Western construct right. of, of differentiation. He says that actually once you delve deep into the... Because you see, I, you know, I often say in my lectures, if you read the Vedas and Upanishads, there is no other. Because the people who conceptualized and wrote the Vedas and Upanishads and thought of the Vedas and Upanishads, did not see that, oh, this is Indian and this is external and this is Hindu and this is not Hindu. They were conceptualizing what makes life. Yeah. What does it mean to live? It was purely cosmic. It It was was never geographical, right? No, not at all. They were talking about human existence in its totality. Hmm. Right? But at the end of the day, it is different from... Other faiths and their foundational texts, right? And these are our foundational texts. And I would argue we are the most plural because our foundational texts not only do they not say Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Sai, they are not even talking about geographies, they are talking about the very heart of being human. What does it mean to have life at all? And forget life. I mean, they are, of course, talking about all living things. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have life at all? So the plurality is much greater. That's how I see it. Now, you could per- perhaps say, well, some people politicize this and there's conflict and so on and so forth. Sure. But we live in, you know, we live in the world that we do. Mm-hmm. And anyway, you know, if you really think about it from an Indian perspective, this is this is the Kali Yog, right right? Uh, there are certain things that are inevitable, in this yoke, if as certain things were inevitable in you know earlier yugas, so to speak, in Kali Yuga, there will be this
1: you know this fractious uh,
0: divisions between people.
1: Talking about divisions, yeah. one of the chapters that sort of left me aghast was the Vande Matram episode. of yeah. Controversy, the truncation of the Vande Matram. Yes. Um, and particularly the dialogue that took place between uh the makers and, and the and, and the and the erstwhile congress party uh who 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 thought that uh some of the lines in the Vande Mataram would, yeah. would lead to divide. I would love for you to sort of explain what that what that controversy is and and you also mentioned that many people in the BJP still believe that what that was one of the reasons why you know the partition happened. So these were like yeah. vast claims. I would love for you to maybe, you know, help me understand. Yeah,
0: so essentially, see, even with the truncated version of the Vandiyamataram, there was still controversy about it. Okay. Because it talks about worshipping Bharat Mata and so on and so forth. Okay. The Mataram, if you see the entire, you know, the entire, all the verses, talks about in much greater depth, talks about the... Country as the mother and you know, as the goddess, and the goddess who should be worshipped, and the goddess who's been you know, destroyed and um, you know, f- defiled, and so on, and so forth, and you know, how uh, its children must fight back. And s- but there is a context to this, and I want to explain this context to you. Bankim Chandra Chattopadhyay, who wrote Vandi Mataram and wrote Ananda the book from where it comes from, mm-hmm. Bank- you have to understand what was his universe. Bunkim's universe or Bankim's universe was a sort of late Nawab period in Bengal. Remember, Shirajud Dola, it is true Shirajud Dola fought the British and was betrayed by Mir Jafar and Battle of Plassey, all of this is true. But Shirajud Dola and many of his people were also very cruel. There are historical accounts of the kind of you know, ravages that uh, happened under Shirajat including with women, including taking away lands, all kinds of things. You know, there is an analysis that the House of Jagat Seth, the most powerful bankers perhaps India has ever seen and one of the most powerful ever in the world, one of the reasons Shirajat Dola was defeated was that the House of Jagat Seth did not support Shirajat And one of the reasons some people argue that the House of Jagat Seth never supported shiraj Dola was because of these excesses, so to speak, of the cruelties. And if you think Shiraj Dola committed cruelties, and there's evidence of that, what happened after his defeat was much worse. Bengal was governed by a series of, quote-unquote, minor nawabs, all deeply hand-in-glove with the East India Company. Hmm. And their excesses upon the people, you know, that's why Bengal began to have these huge famines. Think about it. Bengal is a place where even my grandmother used to say and I'm going to say this in um, Hindi so that more people understand that it becomes a full field Right, right. it was so fertile right is it still the most, fertile today? yes it is still yeah. fertile I mean of course now there's been lots of exci- excesses pesticides all kinds of things but it's nowhere compared to what has happened in the Punjab Okay. Bengal is still very fertile so some of the most fertile lands, right? That entire place was extracted, exploited and oppressed in such a manner mm-hmm. that it had some of the most cruel famines. Bonkem saw that. That was his universe. So therefore, Mutt was about these bands of sadhus, you know, ascetics, who came out of the forest and fought the oppressive rule of the nawab and the, their cohorts of the East India Company. That's why at the end of Anandamart, one of the sadhus actually says that maybe Queen, you know, the English Queen's rule would be better than this, hmm. because the oppression we are facing now, at least if it was directly the British government, there would be some recourse, because these people are completely barbarians. What they're doing to us, right? So that was the that was the universe. And so, of course, there was a complaint against this, even in the song. But of course, you know, as you would read in the book, there were people who objected, saying this is anti-Muslim and this, that and the other, without understanding that this was the context in which this was written.
1: It was uh, a, a, a war cry against the Nawabs who were inflicting pain on them. As Absolutely. opposed to the faith, right?
0: Absolutely. It was a war cry against the Nawabs and the East India Company who were inflicting uh, terrible cruelties on the people sometimes even
1: in the name of faith but don't you think that if if the lines would have been if the entire vandemataram yeah. was published as is yeah. with loss in translation taking in place yeah. and history being forgotten yeah. that this uh, you know attack on the nawabs would yeah. be considered an attack of muslims and they yeah. would actually be wrongly criticized and persecuted
0: this is a good question but you must consider that already already there were a a whole bunch of things that had happened during that time, Hmm. right? There was already Gandhi who was giving a very different message. There was already Jinnah who had his own ideas. There was Iqbal who had a very clear and defined idea Hmm. that how the country should be divided. Therefore, when this additional question came up, the point was that already there is talk of division. Already there are riots everywhere. Hmm. So at at what point do you stop saying we will not do this because
1: it will make a bunch so of... So Vande Matram was back. conceptualized right before the no, partition? No, no. Vande
0: Matram was ca- happened much before. Okay. And the song had been sung for a long time.
1: In, in, in its entirety?
0: In its entirety in Bengal and many other places. It uh-huh. had been sung many, many times when it came to the context of the song becoming, uh, you know, popular around... Listen, I mean, uh, you know, the long before Gandhi came to the scene, there were revolutionaries in Bengal singing Vande Mataram to the gallows. Mm. Right? There were young men and women who were singing Vande Mataram and sacrificing their life. So, there had to be a line which is drawn in that time in many people's minds on how much would be enough to keep this peace because the peace was anyway being divided right the peace was anyway you know getting disturbed every day remember for a long period of time before independence india was a place where riots were common there were lots and lots of especially in northern india there were endless rioting in pockets constantly right in Northern India, in Eastern India, in you know, Western India, there were lots and lots of this Hindu-Muslim collision. Now when this part also came up, and you know we know what Gandhi said after the Mopla riots famously. What did he say? After the Mopla riots, Gandhi advised that um, essentially, even though uh, the Hindus had been butchered, the best thing they could do was forget it. And uh, and it's all in the book. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Gandhi advised that it would be um, in order to keep the peace between communities. Um, Hindus essentially had no right to strike back, um, even if they were, you know, raped and butchered and so on and so forth. Gandhi said that in order for the greater common good to, you know, be maintained, um, Hindus should still embrace their... Uh, killers and rapists and uh, murderers now you know if you let's let's give the most generous explanation to this you could say Gandhi did not believe in violence of any kind sure and therefore he would suggest no such action so to speak right And yet, it was the same Gandhi who was raising entire uh, hordes of people to go fight for the British. It was the same Gandhi who was bringing um, furious and fervent activism on the streets of India for something that was happening in Turkey. What? Yes. It was the same Gandhi, please, the Khilafat movement, which split. it was the same Gandhi who was saying Muslims had a uh, right to protest against uh, you know, the destruction of the Ottoman Empire and the caliph had to be protected because the caliph oversees the holiest shrines of Islam. So the dichotomous messages that came out mm-hmm. upset a lot of people. And a lot of people then began to say, I'll give you one example, him." Okay? I'm a biographer of Sadhar Patel, you know, the man who saved India. There is an incident in that book where right before independence, already India has faced one wave of attack. It knows what's going on from Pakistan under Jinnah. The treasuries of the two countries are being divided. India has to pay Pakistan 55 crores. Okay. Sardar Patel says, we have already seen the troubles in Kashmir. They have already started. Let us withhold this money until India and Pakistan sit down on the table, thrash out their borders once and for all, and end all strife, confusion and violence. Money will be paid. Hmm. Let's not leave this open. If you leave this open, there will be trouble in the future. What happens after that? Nehru protests. Maulana Azad protests. Sardar Patel still tries to stand firm. Then Gandhi says, if this happens, I will go on a fast, pay the money right away. The money is paid without any discussion happening. What is the price India has paid? We must ask, what is the price India paid for this decision? If Sardar Patel would have brought the two sides onto the table withholding the money and thrashed out the Kashmir problem with a clear border once and for all at that moment. What would have been our 75 years of history compared to what it, what it has been?
1: Sure. I have a question in the most earnest way possible. Sure. right? And I, I wanted to ask this of someone who's as educated and as interested in all of these topics as you are. Sure. When I look at all the literature right, around me yeah. right now, right? Yeah. There, is a, there is a massive resurgence of, yes. of political Hindu literature, Hinduism sure. literature, sure. right? And in all of those cases, for some reason, uh, you know, Nehru is burned at the stake, mm. right? Um, it's almost like mm. for mm. the integral humanism of the RSS or the new right to emerge, mm. Nehru has to be put on the stake. Sure. I always see it. Nehru being secularism is, is shat on mm. and in numerous books. <laughs> numerous speeches, numerous talks. And you know, one of my wiser friends once told me when, when, when governments change the first thing that changes the history, mm. right? So I do see a rewriting of history happening mm. all across the country, you know, there is no two ways about it. Mm. But then i then I'm, you know, I always, I always wondered, is there nothing redeeming about Nehru or Gandhi? Mm. Or is it that enough time has passed mm. and because they've been in limelight for so long, mm. even the skeletons are coming out of the closet. Like realistically, yeah were were they absolutely against the idea of of a country that has majoritarian Hinduism mm. at the mm. core, mm. or were they just they didn't did they not know any better? Can we not mm. give them any benefit of doubt?
0: No, I am not one of those people who says that Gandhi and Nehru has to be wiped out, not mm. at all. In fact, a lot of people are angry when I say that India will always need Gandhi for all his mistakes and errors india will always need gandhi because gandhi's flaws we can keep counting gandhi's flaws and i can myself tell you numerous gandhi's flaws right okay but gandhi still represents an ideal if not indeed in words hmm. you know i always say to many of my audiences and this is you know famous in many spiritual uh, practices don't go by what the guru does Go by what the Guru says. It's the reverse. It's very sort of, you know, people would say, no, 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 but it's actually the reverse. No, because the Guru is still a human being. The wisdom is in the teaching. You don't have to ape what the Guru does in life. You have to take the core message of what the Guru's ideals and teachings are. It's the same way with Gandhi. Yes, Gandhi is ill-treated his wife. Yes, Gandhi was estranged from his children. Yes, Gandhi, a litany of, you know, problems we can say about Gandhi. And yet, we cannot deny that in that traumatic phase of world history, mm. Gandhi represents an ideal. And in a country as fractious as us, as diverse as us,
1: that ideal is always to be respected. Can we also not say that when when they were othering Hindus, they... they probably figured that we have to preserve the diversity of the country and the Muslims are disenfranchised. So we must make sure that their interests are protected above the interests of others. Or did they not have a book, a rule book to get stuff out of I'm also saying this also at a time when you yourself mentioned that the the, the India that Narendra Modi helms is is, is leading is a very prosperous country as opposed to the, the India that Nehru inherited. Correct. So to, to think of religious identity or a political identity, uh, political religious identity at the center of yeah. it, can we not say that maybe that was not their objective at the time? Look,
0: there is no doubt that seeing what they had seen, the kind of bloodshed they had seen in the partition, there was an instinct to avoid that bloodshed happening again, right? There's no doubt about that. I am also not one of those people who says that there is nothing redeeming about Nehru. Nehru brought a certain westernized sensibility which allowed him to, in policy making, distance himself from the fractious divisionism of India. Mm. Right? It's almost as if, you know, it's like the English language because it's English makes you stand apart from the Otherwise, you know, Bengali would say we are better. We got the first Nobel, and Tamil would say we are the oldest right, language, right. and then somebody else would say something else, right? I'm giving a very sort of simplistic explanation, but I'm sure you understand what I'm what I mean. I do. So Nehru's elitism, and I say this in my book on Sadar Patel, Nehru's elitism was instrumentalized by Nehru to give himself that distance for policy making where he thought things were becoming very fractious. Hmm. This is not to say that Nehru wasn't particularly naive, for instance, on questions on China, on questions on extreme left ideology. All of this is true and they are documented. right? I also don't claim that Nehru only had a fractious relationship with Patel, for instance. Look, these were people who had, in a sense, given up their lives and their families and had been part of this movement for a long, long time, right? For all practical purposes, they were the only families that they had themselves, you know. Gandhi was far closer, in a sense, to people like Nehru and Patel than to his own children.
1: Yeah, it's like you you eat at work and you sleep at work and that was work for them.
0: Patel was closer to Gandhi and Nehru than his own daughter and own uh, children and his own parents had gone long ago and his Mm. own wife. So he, all these people were far closer to one another than we today assume. Having said that, look, we are a country which thought in a particular way for a long time. Lots of things were buried, Mm. right? I'll give you one example. Nehru set an extremely wrong precedence by accepting, let's give the most generous description of this, accepting the Bharat Ratna as the first sitting Prime Minister. Now, there are some people today who come and say, no, no, the President gave it to him. He was not a child of two years, right? That lollipop was given to him and he put it in his mouth and walked away. What do you mean gave it to him? The Prime Minister, especially the first Prime Minister, had more executive power than anybody else. Right. So he set a bad precedence, and subsequently, many others of his family did the same thing. Right. That's a bad example to set. He set the wrong precedence by pushing and not giving the Bharat Ratna to his closest political rivals, like Patel, like Ambedkar, who had to wait till the 90s to get the Bharat Ratna.
1: Mm. Right. What I mean, I'm gonna sound very ignorant, but I've I've been seeing that a lot of Bharat Ratnas have been recently given out. Yeah. What well, is it a symbolic gesture? What is the covetous, what, what what exactly is this award? So look, the Bharat Ratna is given to the highest
0: achievement that a Indian can do, right? Now that you will say, what does an achievement mean then? Mm. Right? An achievement could be something like a great writer of great repute, okay. a great filmmaker, a great... Somebody who has transcends boundaries of usual definitions
1: of acclaim, Got it. right? Got it. So aren't the Padma Bhushan Padma also similar in this category? Bharat Ratna is the highest. Okay. We okay. begin at Bhara, Padma Shri and go
0: up to the Bharat Ratna. And then there are many, I think we have started a very good thing of giving uh, these awards, the Padma Awards, to the to people who have done great service at the grassroots, hmm. you see the kind of Padma winners
1: we have, as opposed to people who you meet in lawn parties in, in Exactly, in their,
0: yeah. exactly, because these are people who have worked for years in the grassroots, and you see them. Often they're from very poor background. Mm-hmm. So today, I think the awards are far more inclusive. You know, there was a phase when the awards were very, you know, uh, colloquial in that sense. Ki, okay, chalo, you know, my friend, somebody's recommendation, this, that, all kinds of things, right? And very often, very Delhi-centric, hmm. right? Delhi plus, you know, this. You had to stay on Akbar Road to get an award. <laughs> <laughs> no, and on a very sort of darbarisk feel to it. Hmm. That ye ecosystem me hoon, and ye mere godfathers hai to mujhe mil gaya. Hmm. right? Today, when you see the videos of all these people winning, you can see that these people are from is really some of the most humble
1: places yeah. in India. Some of them are absolutely, like they've just come from the brink of poverty to literally, award. Literally,
0: yeah. literally. And yet, if you look at their contribution, you feel ashamed that, wow, you're so privileged and what have you done? Mm. Whereas they have nothing and what have they done? Right? It's right. incredible. So look, I don't think, you know, I, I'm not an absolutist. However, I think because a lot of things were whitewashed, mm-hmm. a lot of things are coming out now we will at, f- at some point find a balance. And there is a fundamental error. In India, everybody has been taught that, oh, history has been rewritten as if it's a great sin. No. If, you, if anybody knows anything about history writing, the point of history writing is every generation has the right to relook at events and figures constantly afresh in the light of new evidence. Mm. This is what happens in England. This is what happens in America. This is what happens in every other part of the world. You think of how many times Winston Churchill has been written about. Right. From various angles. There must be hundreds of books on Winston Churchill. And yeah. not just Churchill, on every you know major, minor figure. Whereas we think in canonical terms. That is the final word. Hai. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Bipin Chandra Hamari society kiffe, generations, or Joe is a question, karega, that person must have an agenda. Hmm. No. Bipin Chandra had a particular idea of Indian society, which is particular which is perfectly fine. There could be others as the years go by who will relocate what he has written from new angles using new tools, new assessments. And rewrite that story. It's not that, oh, what is the final word? We think of final words. When I wrote my Patel book, do you know, for 30 years, nobody had ever written on Patel. Really? Yes. And I was like, that's ridiculous. These sort of figures are re-looked at every few years in most parts of the world. But we always think of canonical terms. That, oh, this is the book and yehi satya hai. Yeah but which is really ridiculous. I mean, yeah. especially in our culture where we have been, we are constantly encouraged to find new ways of looking at the Yeah, I think we, we
1: use the school tuition STEM approach to history. Exactly. It's like yeah, R.S. Agarwal maths, Etsy whatever, right? I think we, we sadly use that. Yes. And that has led to much peril. Yes. Um, you also mentioned in your book about how Sardar Patel, although being a staunch congressman all yes. his life and yet having ideological dissimilarities with some of the same people in the Congress was actually celebrated by the BJP very recently and, yeah. you know, we have his statue and whatnot. Um, I found that fascinating. You, his, since you've written a book on him, his contributions are not known as well in the country. We yeah. are only now retrospectively seeing him for the man he was. Um, how, how important was he a figure in, in, as far as political Hinduism is concerned since we're on that? So let's begin with wh- how important a figure was he
0: in, in totality? Okay. All of us grew up understanding the Indian map in a particular way. Yes, that map would have not existed without Without, him. Single-handedly, that is the one line that you need to remember about Patel. The very map, the cartographic imagination of India, of modern India, is not possible without him. Five
1: hundred princely states into twenty-eight at that time,
0: and the British India coming together.
1: Hmm.
0: Hyderabad may have broken off. Jinnah was trying to take Raj part of Rajputana. All kinds of things. All kinds of things were happening. Kashmir, we don't know what would have happened. Hmm. All kinds of shenanigans were happening. You know, Junagar, the Nawab of Junagar was trying to act funny. Patel famously said, if I again, once again, when everybody was dithering on what to do on Hyderabad, Patel said, if I don't do this now, generations afterwards will abuse me, saying he was in charge of internal security. He left a cancer in the stomach of India. So, without Patel, we don't have the India that we, you and I know. Yeah. That's the bottom line. He was the man who, even though he was extremely unwell, uh, he pushed through this. Now, his, because he died early, other people didn't want to give him credit. That's a whole other story. right? Also, remember, the Congress used to be a, what we call a big tent party. Mm-hmm. All kinds of people were part of the Congress. The extreme left were also part of the Congress. The extreme right were also part of the Congress. Everybody was part of the Congress. Patel definitely veered towards a far more, you know, we haven't done enough research. I often feel on Indian pragmatism. You know, pragmatism is a very well-defined political ideology. Is it not the same as conservatism? Is it different? no, not at all. No, so pragmatism is. There just, is some yeah. overlap, but pragmatists do things based on the reality that they see today. And I Mm. say in my Patel book, for instance, how should we look at Gandhi, Nehru and Patel? Gandhi was a moralist. Mm. Everything had a spiritual hue to it. right? Nehru was a romantic. He had a vision of what the world should look like. This is how India should look like. This is how the world should look like. The only person who was dealing with the crisis at that moment was Patel. Because yeah. that's what pragmatists do. They deal with the world that they see in front of them. There might be a world that is better, which is possible tomorrow. Yeah. But they deal with the world that is in front of them. There's a great story about this, let me tell you. Patir was also the, uh, you know, the treasurer of the Congress Party. <coughs> and, you know, all these great movements Gandhiji did, you know... Required a lot of money, you know, uh, famously, to keep Gandhiji in poverty required a lot of money, (laughs) right? So, (laughs) this is a famous statement, right? I mean, to keep Gandhi in poverty took a lot of money. So, where would the money come from? Patel had the widest network of Indian entrepreneurs, Indian capitalists, big business, whatever you want to call it, who would fund Uh, G.D. Birla famously said that his relationship with Patel was chits of wood come on or to him, which had a figure in Patel's handwriting written on it. Hmm. And he would hand over that money. right? And that's why G.D. Birla and Patel of and course. Gandhi were very close and so on and so forth. right? So somebody once went up to Patel and said, you know, you deal with all these business people and money and all of that. Gandhi Ji is not happy about this, you know, because this is not dealing with all these capitalists and so on. So Patel said... Gandhi is Mahatma. I am not Mahatma. Mm. I have to run the party. And the party, running this party, running this movement requires funds. After independence, Patil was told, Pandit Nehru doesn't like all this handling with capitalists and all of that. You know, we should go towards a socialist future. Patil said, all of these people supported us in running the party when we had nothing and we were fighting the empire. I am not going to desert these people, you know, uh, just because we have now received independence. They are going to be part of the nation building process. I'm not going to make them villains.
1: Two philosophers, one CEO. (laughs) It's true.
0: (laughs) So, you know, so there is a there is always complex history behind these things. Right. So he was a deep pragmatist. Mm. Um, And I actually think that uh, may a million voices thrive. May many other people write books. You know, may they look at it from all kinds of angles. What's the harm? But we had created an India where certain books or certain people couldn't be written about in a particular Mm. way. Right? You tell me, (coughs) why did we not have a real, uh, you know, detailed book book? on political Hinduism. Even if you wrote about political Hinduism, you had to abuse it. Really? That's the only kind of book that... So you're talking
1: about which year when, when you... No, no. So
0: I'll tell you, in 2013, when I finished writing Being Hindu, mm. I had
1: already written four or five books before that. And this is when, when the Narendra Modi phenomenon, as we know, was nowhere uh, around. It no, was...
0: no, not at all. There was no Narendra Modi phenomenon at that time. My agent in America pitched it to a whole bunch of publishers in India. Mm. All of them said no. Two of them said why don't you change the word being Hindu to being Indian because being Hindu might be sectarian. Mm. To which my agent pointed out lots of other books which had been written on Islam, Christianity, this, that and the other in India. But they still refused to publish. The publisher is to publish with at that time, not Penguin. Penguin came later with being Hindu. At that time refused to publish it. Saying no, 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 this uh, will seem controversial. We cannot publish it, until. And here's the funny thing. Until, in one literature festival, my agent happened to come from America, bumped into Shobha Day, uh-huh. and they got talking. And my agent told Shobha Day, "You know, there's this young author who's writing all these books." and He's written a very lovely book on you know the experience of being Hindu from a you know ordinary practitioner's point of view, and all these publishers saying this, Shobha De being Shobha De from her generation and being genuinely a uh, you know like a, you know somebody who thinks uh, independently said what rubbish, how can people stop other people from doing work? I have an imprint with Penguin. I will publish it under my imprint. You send the manuscript to me the moment word got around that shobha day wanted to publish this book immediately i found a publisher do you know i had found a publisher for being hindu in america before i could get one from in india that's crazy that was the india we lived in see you have to see all of these things in a historical context that is what india had become so today what you're seeing if you feel lots of things are being written from one direction, it is a balancing act of what has happened for 70 years. Hmm. Right? And, I, and therefore, I feel that when enough of both sides start coming out, a natural equilibrium balance would come. I am not somebody who ever says, let a million other books praising uh, Pandit Nehru come out. Right? I have no problems. I am never going to suggest that somebody cannot write this, cannot write that. But we had created a framework where certain things could only be touched if a bitter critique was launched.
1: And your and your friendships and your you know the way you speak, you're very eloquent, very well researched, and maybe your friendships in the publishing world or literary festivals, that that in-group didn't help you at no, all?
0: No, not at all. Because number one, I am I consider myself an outsider. And I was certainly a more of an outsider that time, hmm. right? Ten years ago. Look. There is a, I mean, Delhi operates in cliques, okay? And these cliques are very well organized, very tightly knit, you know? Um, you know, it's, it's that, it's that um, famous statement, right? The Khan market consensus. You couldn't deviate from the Khan market consensus. There was a consensus about how India needed to be portrayed, Mm. If you portrayed anything apart from that, there was a problem. Why did I write my book on Swami Vivekananda? Because one day, I was, I still remember this so distinctly. One day I began to watch this video where this strange professor had been platformed by a man who was later arrested for trying to rape a girl in Goa that strange man and you know who uh, you know I think is still fighting a case or God knows what is happening with him he used to do this festival and he had platformed this strange professor or academic I don't know what he was who proceeded to say that Swami Vivekananda maligned the teachings of Ramkrishna Paramahans I was like what are you talking about And that Swami Vivekananda was this, whatever, this uh, militaristic nationalist and I don't know what they said. Mm. And I came from a Ramakrishna Mission background. I had grown up seeing all these people. I mean, it is the most non-political organization that you can think of. Mm. And I was like, if at all, I still didn't feel that he shouldn't write what he should write. He wrote. It's fine. He wrote something, whatever. But surely there should be an argument from the other side also. Right. That argument was entirely missing. I think over 10 years, we've now had an argument. A lot more could be done. I think let every voice thrive. Let people write whatever they want to write, as long as the Mm -hmm. quality is good. Right. And at the end of the day, this is the debate through which nation building happens. But we cannot quieten one side completely. And that never works. There will always be a repercussion at some point in history. So I think we are going through, you know, I often like to say that, you know, in our tradition, there's a Samudra Manthan, right? I mean, you would have heard of this. Of the, course, love the Samudra The mountain. Devas and the Asuras, you know, sort of churn, yeah. by the way. There was but a across the mountain. Yeah. Correct. But, but remember, the Asuras, you know, contrary to what the West tells us, they're not devils or villains or anything. Yeah, like I have
1: that. a... I'm going to interview this gentleman very soon, Anand Neelakantan. Oh, yeah. He's a Sura good friend v. of mine. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. Okay. So, not at all. I mean, they are just... This is a different perspectives of human life. Hmm. So, in that churn, what happens is, finally, what are they trying to get at? They're trying to get at the nectar of life, right? But before the nectar, a lot of, you know, poison comes out. Remember, yeah. Shiva is Neil Kant because... And remember, you said Neil Kant, yeah. Neil Kant because... That poison would destroy the universe, so Shiva has to hold it in his neck, right? Even he cannot drink it. Mm-hmm. Eternally he has to hold it in his neck, right? So obviously, poison is obviously a dramatic way of putting it, but a lot of stuff will come out. We are going through a period of great churn. Lots of stuff will come out in, in our history, right? And uh, you know, this debate is very welcome, and I you know, I think it, we
1: would only gain from it. One of the things you mentioned in the book is you have a whole history of political Hinduism. Emerging. Yes. You've got the Anand Mat, you've obviously got Savarkar and many others. Yes. Yes. But then when political Hinduism actually begins to have a significant impact yes. politically, not just yes. as a, a thing you exchange in memos and sure. letters and private conversations that the public is not privy to is when Vajpayee mm. and LK Erwani come to the national fold Yeah, and uh, gain prominence yeah. and, uh, I found that part very interesting and yeah. I would love for you to sort of comment more on one their background second their friendship and how the orator from Hinterland India India and and the the
0: missionary school student
1: the missionary school student urban missionary school student band together to yeah. help Vajpayee navigate yeah. Lutian's Delhi. Yeah.
0: No it's it's a it's a fascinating story right I mean actually uh Vajpayee was more sort of uh, socially more open. Advani is fairly, you know, patrician. And, you know, he maintains a certain decorum. In, in mm-hmm. Vajpay is the sort of, you know, enjoyed a drink, you know, uh, ate too many sweets, you know, was diabetic. And um, uh, Adwani-ji, I ji, I've heard that um, he's, I mean, he's always been very Spartan. But one of the reasons for his relative good health is that he's always been a very sparse eater. Hmm. Or whereas Mr. Vajpai always, you know, enjoyed his food and so on and so forth. So I think it's a really unique uh, uh, story. I once um, uh, told Advaniji that uh, a book should be written about uh, both of them and their story. Uh, which, because it's a unique story. And, um, you know, I think some uh, books have come out on that subject. Uh, I think um, these two people from very, very different backgrounds molded an idea into a modern political movement. I also mention in my book that the mysterious deaths of Shama Prasad Mukherjee and then Deendee Upadhyay really cast a shadow on this movement because these were the two tallest leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, after all, Mukherjee was one person who could effectively challenge even Nehru on many subjects, right? Deendee Upadhyay was an intellectual, Right. The revival of this movement happens with people like Vajpayee and Advani at its helm because they are able to take the ideas that were close to their heart and make it truly mass. Mm -hmm. But the real massification of that also, remember, only begins to a degree with the JP movement against Indira Gandhi. Jansang becomes part of the government, right? Um, But... After the breakaway of the Jansang and, you know, the, this dual membership idea, can one be part of the broader sort of uh, structure uh, running the government and be part of the RSS, this dual membership. Whereas all the RSS members clearly say at that point that, no, we cannot give up our RSS membership because it's truly like family to us. Right. They then go on to create the Bharatiya Janata Party, right? Uh, and the Bharatiya Janata Party then, um, you know, creates... An entire public movement to spread their ideology, and the final push to make it mass happens with the Rath right? So the J B movement gives them a first flip towards power, hmm. but then it sours very quickly. Mrs Gandhi comes back to power. This dual membership thing happens. All kinds of you know problems crop up. Then a new party is created, and then the final. Big push that was required comes with the Ayodhya movement. It's fun, uh, funny today to remember that the Ayodhya movement began. You know, the Atra began from the same Somnath that Sadar Patel had left word uh, with K.M. Munshi that had to be rebuilt, and Pandit Nehru tried hard to stop the rebuilding. He said it will be
1: Hindu revivalism, right? Correct. That's what he said in the book. Correct,
0: and uh, even uh, suggested to the first president, Rajendra Prasad that he should not go to the inauguration of Somnath Temple. Uh, mm-hmm. The president didn't listen to him, he up going there. But, um, you know, Advani Ji writes in his book, uh, My Country, My Life, that, uh, you know, when he went to Somnath and the you know, Rathyatra began from there, he understood that, the, you know, this was the whole significance of all of these things coming together. So
1: how was, so at this point, um, you know, they have a new party and Advani yeah. and Vajpayee are sort of building the first real political movement yes. around espousing Hinduism into the national fold, into making it, like you said, Masi, and to allowing this latent culture to be also affected by policy, right? Yeah. W- 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 what On on, this, on the his- historical end, you've got all of these predecessors that they're coming from, all of this history. Yeah. How do they enact this? Like, how does political Hinduism, or how does Hinduism then enacted politically? In what acts? You mm-hmm. said Ratyatra is one, right? Their uh, the movement and what is this doing to say the citizens of the country is there any pushback against this mm-hmm. and and how is this identity being consolidated because we also have to remember this is predating the era of social media yeah. so we have too many articles too many essays now to document everything that is happening right now in the modi government mm-hmm. which is you know the successor of the political hinduism movement
0: no absolutely and there is a lot of pushback um, uh, not from uh, you know obviously the ratiyatra is very successful but remember advani ji is arrested by laluji in in Bihar, why is that? Uh, Ji is arrested by no, Lalu. Wh- why is that? Uh, because Lalu Prasad Yadav feels that this is not secular, mm. and this will, you know, destroy the
1: country. Right? So, is I have a question. So, so because Yadavs and Muslims typically have vote banks in in you know eastern UP and Bihar, because they have to appeal to those vote banks, is that why they push back against it?
0: Yeah, and that that is that is the reason uh, you will hear from say uh, the you know so sort of a. You know, pro-BJP analysis would talk about this and there is some truth to that um, and uh, you know uh, the pro-Lalu Yadav analysis would say that no 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 he genuinely believed that this is not good for secularism and so on and so forth Right? Um, you know many people say that one of the reasons why uh, Mrs. Gandhi Mrs. Sonia Gandhi actually you know has always been very um, you know uh, he has always been very fond of Lalu Prasad Yadav is because of this one act that he stood up for a particular kind of secularism mm-hmm. uh, when it was most needed, uh, but this—I mean—we don't know the truth about that. Right. This is just something that people say, but it's certainly true that uh, Lalu Prasad Yadav had deep uh, friendships within the at the highest echelons of the Congress party and proceeded to maintain that over many many years. Uh, from the BJP point of view, of course, uh, Advani's arrest stalls the yatra, but something had been triggered in society. Mm. And remember, there is also a moment where uh, this is also a moment where Ramayan and Mahabharat, which Advani ji had suggested for a long time should be uh, shown on Indian television, begins to be shown. Mm. And it's an incredible reception. You know, no one can think of the kind of reception it got. You know, cities shut down for the broadcast of Ramayan and Mahabharat. Um, People sit with Puja Ki Thali in front of the television sets for Ramayan and Mahabharat. Um, I remember seeing just last year, you know, Arun Govil, who played Lord Ram, Prabhushi Ram, just last year was emerging out of a, um, an airport. And there's this lady who sees him and begins to weep and bows down. And he's obviously very uncomfortable and he's like, don't do this. But, I, but you can see that he's, I mean, he knows that this is, you know, this is Astha. Yeah. And she touches his feet. Now, one part of us may say, oh, look, I mean, you know, this is how these things get, you know, uh, stoked in a country and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. But remember, um, I don't believe that that lady doesn't understand that this is not Prabhu Shiram. What she's respecting is the fact that when she saw the show for the first time, it brought alive in her mind a sense of devotion that she may as an individual may have carried forever. Mm. It gave life to that devotion. And she's paying respect to that. I don't believe the people who say, oh, you know, look, an illiterate woman doesn't know anything. That's rubbish. Everybody knows everything these days. Mm. And not today in the age of social media. You know, I think the lady also knows that this is not God. But she's, giving respect and honor as much as she can to the person who enacted in such a beautiful way uh, a character who through to which to whom she feels so much devotion and she's paying respect to that idea to her mind and imagination being able to see almost um, you know the uh, prabhushiram in life
1: yeah i wonder in- I don't know his story, but he may have just have been, Hey, this role will make me some money and make me happy. And then, but yeah. this whole journey might have completely purified him and cleansed him.
0: But you know, that's true. If you look at what Arun Govil did after the Ramayan, Okay. He never veered very deep into other kind of stuff. He remained in this whole spiritual quasi spiritual, slightly devotional universe. Hmm. He never veered very dramatically. I mean, you will not find, okay, he did the Ramayana and suddenly after that, he played some villain in some hmm. whatever. He didn't.
1: But that's also a, like a, a smart market decision. Maybe,
0: maybe. But I think we should also, coming from India, knowing what we know of our history, we should also at least give keep some space for the fact that people may have genuinely felt something in the long process that they lived with this character Hmm. because remember even um, uh, many of the the uh, actor who played Shri Krishna never went and did some dramatic other things after that Hmm. he also uh, I mean his popularity of course I think he fought an election and won uh, locally once but he also remained broadly in that and then sort of faded away like he didn't do anything dramatically
1: yeah, I, I, different I, i'm just hypothetically assuming i don't no, think no. you can because you know i think the stakes are, maybe. the stakes get too high where maybe maybe where your deification should not be replaced by some two-bit animosity. Like, yeah, yeah. two-bit like where you're like, I don't know, slapping someone three times and the yeah. telecast, like that whole serial masala is happening. So maybe, yeah. maybe you avoid that. I no, s- it's possible. Yeah. I
0: mean, I'm not denying what you're saying. Yeah. I'm just saying we should take a holistic approach to looking at these things mm-hmm. because neither, neither of us know what the truth is, right? Mm-hmm. But it is true that many people feel this kind of devotional, very devotion, very powerfully in our country. Mm-hmm. And I would say if, Look we are taught in uh, we have, we were always taught that lived experience counts right so my question is why does this lived experience not count if every lived experience counts then people who feel this kind of you know piety and devotion their lived experience also counts when you, when you were trying to get Being
1: Hindu published, would, did the idea of being a political Hindu or just Hindu, did it fascinate you from an intellectual standpoint? It still
0: does. And I, I, I don't think I'm anywhere close to, you know, over.
1: No, but like even as a kid growing up, right, like because uh, we are a few generations, two, two generations apart, I think, um, even then, were other people sort of talking about it? Was this like in the n- national conversation the way it is now? And did you feel some support for this? Like, basically what I'm asking is, were you pursuing this idea in a silo all by yourself? Or did you have an ecosystem to sort of help you with this? No, no, I didn't know. I mean, I was a journalist.
0: I, I didn't have, like, now I know many more people. I knew, journalistically, I knew a lot of people. I used to be a journalist, you know, I was a business journalist. So I knew a lot of business people at that Mm -hmm. time. Uh, I didn't have any sort of, and there wasn't such an ecosystem, you know. Uh, All of this has happened later. Uh, So in a sense, that was quite a silo, solo uh, activity. It's once, uh, what happened was once the book got published, then I think there was a lot of, suddenly I realized that, you know, a lot of people had a lot of, very interesting things to say about this, and so on and so forth, um, and uh, and yeah, and it has never stopped after that. So uh, it's it's been very very interesting. Look, I think um, I am certainly not anywhere close to over my explorations of you know devotional or spiritual um, history and activity in India. Uh, I think there is so much material there, and there's so much that we can look at with fresh eyes. Uh, this would be very important. Look, I mean, I I want to mention one more thing to you. Mm -hmm. This always happens. Uh, You know, nations also work like human beings do on a Maslow's hierarchy hierarchy of needs needs triangle, right? When we are very poor, you know, or, or when we don't have much access and so on and so forth. In my parents' generation, the most important thing was to ensure livelihood to a particular level. That was the firm first goal. As we became more and more prosperous and some of the basic stuff got sorted, we then began to realize that, oh, there was more to life than this. Mm -hmm. And we had to, the questions of who we really are. You know, before we began this conversation, you were talking about how a lot of people became interested in streetwear and all these brands. and, And I remember that phase of India where, you know, people were wearing Ed Hardy t-shirts
1: and things like that. <laughs> Very tacky still, if you look at it And retrospectively. I
0: don't even know why they liked Ed Hardy. Yeah. Literally, I have, before or after that phase, never heard of
1: anybody talk about Ed Hardy mm. as aspirational. It died down so fast, because I think everyone and anyone who made graphic tees, or, yeah. or, uh, or like, you remember, like, rock band tees yeah. were just basically cheaper variations of the Ed Hardy, because Ed yeah. Hardy would, like... Double down on skulls, double down on roses, yeah. double down on cursive writing. I really think it was it was made for bikers in America.
0: Yeah. And
1: bikers in America made luxurious that Indians somehow got, caught wind of. It was expensive and yeah. exclusive. So they got it. They looked shitty as fuck, by the way, right? Like Because maybe we didn't have it was enough really graphic bad. tees.
0: No, it was really and bad. then
1: once the e-commerce revolution came around and everyone started like using yeah. Indian slogans and 300 so so 400 ki t-shirts aani shuru ho had it disappeared yeah yeah yeah
0: so so we had to go through this to come to this point yeah. you know and that's also a great spiritual lesson right I mean you have to go through life in order to reach somewhere mm-hmm. we had to as a nation go through all this clamor I still remember like LVMH coming to India being a really big thing and I always just think that you know a lot of these bags are just like canvas you know yeah. I mean uh, like in Paris, People wouldn't even be buying these canvas bags. I mean, they would be buying much better, higher-end LV, yeah. if at all. Or actually, the French aristocracy would be buying things like Hermès, uh-huh. right? So, but in India, of course, in South Delhi and whatever, <laughs> there was this clamor for these monogrammed bags and so on and so forth. Yeah. So we had to go through that phase. It was a phase. We had to go
1: through that phase.
0: And today, you know, everybody is now talking about Pashmina and this, that, yeah. and the other. Yeah.
1: Returning to that. We're returning, returning to that. Returning to, like we were mentioning, yeah, we were returning like raw, to that. raw mango, perro, yeah. like logo-less, brand-less. You can't really pinpoint to a Correct. logo on all Correct. these things. And, 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 and they certainly look like they've come after a lot of churning, a lot of yeah. like uh, going through luxury mass consumer yeah. to things. I have a friend who makes one of one pieces. So you, he basically does you sit with him and you give him his, your ideas and then he makes custom clothes for yeah. you using AI and everything else. His brand is called, called My morning doing very well and it's just, it's you've reached that level of consumer It's like, I just want one of one. this. No one yeah. else can have it.
0: No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and if you think about it, this was always our tradition, right? I mean, even today, uh, the, the really discerning gentry, so to speak, people with wealth and a lot of culture and uh, history and so on and so forth, look for things like that, right? I mean, Uh, you know, they would look for that one thing that people don't buy. You know, like, for I'll give you an example, right? People who really understand jewelry in this country don't go to Cartier. They go to Virin Bhagat in South Bombay. Now, Virin Bhagat is perhaps still, I mean, he used to be a few years ago, the only designer, jewelry designer in India to have been featured twice in the Rob report. Is that a coveted report? Very very coveted. But very few people know about this because it's only South Bombay gentry and parts of Gujarat gentry, people with really very vast amounts of money and with a very discerning taste who know about Viren Bhagat. Hmm. So the South Delhi crowd don't even know about Viren Bhagat, forget buying from him, right? They will go to their Bulgari and Cartier and so on and so forth, right? Hmm. And sadly, the stuff that they are buying from Bulgari and Cartier are the rock bottom stuff. They're not even buying the really crafted, you know, like people internationally who really understand jewelry would try and buy from jar, right? They will not necessarily go to, you know, some, you know, Cartier or whatever. So my point is, I think we are rediscovering Many of the things like I know families in Bengal who, you know, have traditionally had money. They will buy the finest muslin. Uh They will know that one place in Mushidabad, that one weaver who will make that one unique thing for them. Uh They will know that one, you know, whatever, like leather worker who will handcraft shoes for them. You know, I used to work with a man like that. You know, I think I learned a lot from him.
1: Where, uh, where and what? Uh, in Fortune. You know, okay. the man who
0: owned Fortune, who brought in oh, Fortune, part of a, you know, um, a newspaper chain. Uh, Avik Sarkar of the Ananda Bazar uh, Patrika group.
1: Okay, Avik Sarkar of uh, ABP later That's on? right. Avik Sarkar. Uh, Chiki Sarkar's father? Chiki Sarkar's yeah. father. Okay.
0: So I had the pleasure of interacting with him, uh, you know, a few times when I used to work at Fortune. And, you know, he's a man of impeccable taste. The man always wears, either he wears a suit or he wears a dhoti kurta you know. And Nicholas Coleridge, uh, as a young journalist, I read about him. Nicholas Coleridge wrote this book called Paper Tigers. And one part of it is about Indian press barons. And this was mm. in like twenty, thirty, maybe even 40 years ago, 30 years ago, certainly. And there he wrote about Avik Sarkar that uh, the first six things that I heard about Avik Sarkar was, uh, what was it? He only accepts Bolivian or Colombian coffee. He, and there was a whole list and where he yeah. plays tennis, which he does every day. He changes his Ralph Lauren t-shirt four times every set. And there was a whole list of these things. But, you know, I mean, when I met the man, there was obviously an aura. But you realize that he's not looking necessarily to buy something that flashes out that he has money. He will buy the things that he really wants. Mm. I remember Avik Sarkar once gave me like this. He spoke to me about this, how to select Rudraksh. Mm-hmm. I still remember this so distinctly. You know, and we were all sitting around and he taught us, you know, spoke to us about how to select Rudraksh, you know, what goes in. And it was fascinating. The other time he spoke to us about Balaposh. You know, Balaposh was in Bengal. The Nawabs used to have wear, uh, have these. Bengal is not very cold in winter. But they're still chilly in the countryside uh, to a degree. So they have these very lovely quilts called balaposh. Each layer of the balaposh is made fragrant using burning incense under it for hours. So that every layer of cotton is perfectly perfumed and then many, many layers of that is stitched, hand-stitched to make one
1: quilt. So, but but this, doesn't the fragrance go out after a while? No, that's why right. you have to do it for a long, long time so that the very threads of the cotton... Has the smoke embedded in it.
0: Has the smoke embedded in it. That's crazy. And then we went to try and find out in, you know whether there's ba- people doing original Balaposh. And I think there was one, one family somewhere who was still doing it in that way. Yeah. So I'm saying the the people who know... Don't necessarily buy a lot of the stuff that you know, like this Delhi NCR <laughs> wealthy buy, yes, You know,
1: I have a few very uh, you know pertinent questions to ask about this. Sure, um, <clears throat> I want to ask you about taste, right? Yes. And I, I I have this conversation with with many people in my audience, younger yes. younger people particularly, yes. right? Because I've had a very long journey with taste, right? Yeah, my first few years. You acquire the same books as everyone else reads. Maybe you, you branch out a little bit. I was lucky to have an interest in rock and roll because I randomly chanced upon yeah. the best of the eagles uh, in Thailand and a pirated yeah. city shop for some reason. And that allowed me to sort of weird away from my mm-hmm. peers and build a taste in rock. And then for clothing, I have friends, books, right? A, a whole thing. And now I look at the posters I would adorn my room with would be just, you know, drivel from websites. Uh, you know, classic rock and whatnot. And I've seen over time. I've like Jordan Peterson says, you stumble onto taste, you stumble yeah. onto beauty. It takes a while, but then you have so much disdain for what you left behind because you're like, oh my god, I was doing this. But do you not think that along the way you come and meet people who are so tasteful and so elegant that they completely change the trajectory of how much beauty you have in your life or how many things you adorn your mm-hmm. life with? Have you had people like that, like like Avik or or someone else who? Yeah. who who changed the way you, you dress, who changed the way you behaved? Which, who allowed you to, in a lot of ways, you know, become cultured.
0: No, absolutely. And um, I think, um, you know, what you're describing, I mean, you know, I knew and know people in Bengal like that. Again, people who, they're not all necessarily old money, let mm-hmm. me say this. They are people of learning who then happened to make money. When they made money, because they came from learning, They knew what to do with the money. I see. They were not all people who began with money at all. Right? Um, And I think that's a very interesting journey. We always think that, okay, old money, new money, clear division. I don't think that's so pat at all. I think there could be people who come with learning and then acquire some wealth and then they know what to do with that wealth. Right? Uh Uh, You know, many of my Oxford professors were like that, you know. Uh, they didn't always come from money. It's just that they had become, with time, you know, and learning, they had become Oxford dons. So they become, you know, very well paid and so on and so forth. And therefore, they knew, okay, you know, what did they want to drink? They didn't want to drink what everybody was drinking. You know, mm-hmm. there was the one thing that they wanted to drink, and what food they wanted, and the particular thing that they wanted, and so on and so forth. I think taste is something that is always acquired. There are some people who are privileged to have come from backgrounds where there was always taste. So they sort of stumbled through. But, you know, there are a lot of people who come from such backgrounds also and become really like crass.
1: Hmm.
0: That also happens. Hmm. So I think I would argue very strongly that taste is a byproduct of aesthetics. Aesthetics is a byproduct of learning. By learning, I don't only mean degree-oriented learning but a certain kind of learning about the world. For the lack of a better word, let's just say societal wisdom or even just wisdom. So taste, what we call taste is only the final frontier. But taste is a byproduct of aesthetics. Aesthetics is a byproduct of wisdom. Because what is aesthetics? Aesthetics is knowing not only what you want to consume, but what you should consume, right? I remember uh, writing about, you know, uh, luxury in my fortune years. There was a period where there was a huge battle between LVMH and Hermes, right? And uh, I went to Paris to talk to the Hermes people and so on and so forth. And LVMH was trying to, you know, take over Hermes through like this, whatever, you know, this this predatory move, so to speak. So I met the Hermes CEO and... um, And I remember him saying, if LVMH takes over Hermes, within a year, it will no longer remain Hermes. So I asked him, what do you mean by that? And he said, look, I mean, we never tell people you should buy many, many of our handbags or anything at all. Because we make products that will not only, if you keep them properly, last your lifetime, they are products you can bequeath to the next generation. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you should have just because you have money, forty of these products, say handbags, it's a ridiculous idea. Wow. The world does not have if everybody wealthy started to consume like this, we would run out of precious leather. It's not sustainable.
1: Yeah, so what they really invented heirloom luxury then.
0: So it's, it's it's what Patek Philippe argues, right? That you never own a Patek Philippe, you, you basically only keep it for the next generation. You're a trustee for the next generation. And I think we used to have that idea. Remember in our culture, even today, uh, you know, a lot of mothers would tell their children, I'm buying this for who you marry. Yeah, that's true. That's very common. They said, jewelry is not necessarily only for me. I'm buying this so that when you get married, this will be handed over.
1: Mm -hmm. That's also true for bridal wear, by the way. Of course. Yeah.
0: So this was already in our culture. Because, see, if we had to consume luxury the way the Americans consume luxury, it's impossible to sustain this. There isn't enough. I mean, I don't know. We would have to mass breed crocodiles and then slaughter them to get, I don't know, some strange thing. Hmm. We would not be able to get the precious skins with which a lot of luxury items in leather are made or Mm. the wool
1: with which a lot of precious, you know, wool material is made. I want to go back to something you said that was probably like, it's a formula that, you know, you said that uh, taste comes from aesthetics. Aesthetics come from learning. Yes. Right. Now I will lay out this scenario in front of you and, and help me understand. So you can help me understand this better. Sure. Let's talk about learning, right? Yeah. So we have a country where, People are generally disenfranchised with schools and colleges. I consider them necessary in the sense that give you a good place to start from, right? Because it's unlikely that we have a very robust homeschooling system or a family with all aristocrats and divine tastes where they can just sort of pass it on to you. Sure. There are many beautiful people with beautiful tastes for bad yes. teachers, right? Or sometimes absent. Sure. So you've got schools. So people acquire some degree of learning in school. Then they also have interests. Mostly people either pursue a hobby to learn that more or they read books. Mm. I want to narrow in on books. I found that, see the average Indian young youth reads more self-help and business books Mm. than they would care to read about history or aesthetics, right? Because it seems as a very frivolous pursuit Mm. at a country that is now trying to grow itself. So I see so many of my friends younger than me in most cases, very well established, far more disposable income with no taste at all and they ask me, Whenever how is it that you do this and do this. I'm like, I I can't really answer. I've just like always read this thing that I want to read and and be the person that I want to be. But I, I, I struggle with transferring it. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about learning, what, you know, separates this from, uh, you know, the same bestseller around five ways Mm -hmm. to make money and four ways to change your beliefs.
0: So look, this is always a journey, right? We usually think of these things as destinations. We are going through a phase where already we have come out of that, you know, let's have everything monogrammed phase to a degree, right? Mm -hmm. But there are many young people in this country. We are now in a phase which I think will at least take another 20 years where many more people will ask themselves, who am I really? And then they will realize that who moved my cheese or... You know, You Can Win or whatever it is. By the way, Who Moved My Cheese is one of the most miserable books in the history of mankind. Maybe, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was, but it's one of those, you know, American self-help books, which is just, I don't know, it's about these cheese who move one cheese, uh, mice which who move cheese from here to there. And it's about knowing that oh, opportunity has moved, therefore you have to move. I'm like, I don't know, like I was really poor. So I already knew that, you know, <laughs> Poverty taught me that, you know, I could have written who moved my cheese, you know, who moved yeah. my doll uh, It was just like, but we are going through, having said that, we are going through a phase where this upwardly mobile thing is very, very deeply enmeshed in us. It will take a little more time until people f- begin to understand that, okay, you can read all this, you know, how you can top, how you can move this, that, all kinds of things. Hmm. But you will still be dissatisfied because you will fundamentally not grow what I call a bearing mm. right and a bearing comes from an anchor somewhere and your anchor cannot be that I worked in Wickenzie, then I worked in Bain then before that I was in EY and then my dad has x amount of money so therefore I went to I don't know Timbuktu for a holiday sure you can do all of that But again, when you return to your desktop or laptop on Monday morning, you will feel miserable because what you're doing is you're injecting that, you know, adrenaline rush from time to time. Mm -hmm. But you don't have an anchor. You have no idea about who you are. You're basically saying, "Acha, you know, the other day somebody messaged me saying, "Uh, what? Um, Paris and London are no longer in the vogue uh, or in vogue. Uh, Everybody is going to... Baku Mm -hmm. I was like okay but uh, I mean even if you go to Baku you might come back from Baku and feel as unhappy on your laptop as you did coming back from Paris it's just that you've you know shifted the location Right, right but fundamental things in you are not changing because your identity is not rooted to anything your identity cannot be that I drank I don't know if you can afford it, blue label over the weekend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we used to skinny dip in, I don't know, like Mozambique and now I'm in Baku. That, that's not your identity. It can never be your identity. It's impossible. And therefore, you're seeing number of suicides among young are growing exponentially. Not just in India, around the world. You look at a whole bunch of identity. Look, we're in, we're in a world not only of technology, but we're in a world of identity crisis. Mm -hmm. You look at what's happening on identity, on race, Mm -hmm. identity, on gender, identity, on nationality, all of these things, identity, on religion. There is a global crisis of identity. Some people are trying to fix it with gender. Some are trying to fix it with race. Hmm. Some are trying to fix it with political ideology. Some with, you know, motivated spiritual ideology, all kinds of things. But that still doesn't give you the anchor and that anchor will come when you actually face the mirror and one day and ask, so what am I really? Am I the same nightclub that everybody else goes to? Am I the same cars? I mean, in Delhi, for instance, I was just saying this to somebody else. Even if I had the money, which I don't, but even if I had the money, I would really never buy a BMW. It's just the most boring thing to buy because It just reeks of a particular kind of city and a particular mindset where you think this will set me apart or this will help me fit in. Mm -hmm. But you may buy a BMW. Actually, I I would much rather meet people who buy the BMW not as an identity marker, but because it's great technology. It's a great car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But most people, I at least know, don't buy it because the engineering is so superb. They buy it because it'll tick another box.
1: right? And it's that box ticking that you do too so much of that when you come back to yourself, you feel very hollow and empty on the inside. Of course. Because that groundedness, that anchor you're talking about, it has to be like a deeper cause. It could be like you want to dedicate yourself lifelong to learning, to being a better human being. It could be
0: anything, right? It could be that you really care about animals. I'm just giving an example. No matter what you do, you care about animals. And you want to devote X amount of your time every week, no matter what else is happening in your life, to taking care of animals. It doesn't have to be in some grand way. Maybe it's just two kittens in your house. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's five strays outside your door. Right. But that is an unselfish, motivated un, uh, 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 an action driven by no selfish motivation, which you're doing every day. Right. See, anchor comes from lack of selfishness. It can never come from only transactional methodology, right? Uh-huh. See, what is selfishness at the end of the day? I will only do this if I get this. So, uh-huh. I will appear for work every morning because I will get this bonus at the end of the year. Usse baku uh-huh. I don't know why I have baku in my head, but anyway. <laughs> or I will buy that beamer. Or I will go and blow whatever, like, you know one lakh rupees dancing in some Gurgaon pub or whatever, right? (laughs) And sure, you could do that. Or I would buy a handbag of like whatever, right? But the point is, all those motivations are finally selfish. You're working to get that. What will happen if you do that? Your friends will say, achaha, tick, 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 tick. Mm -hmm. But if you take care of, I'm just saying... And even though that also people now become, you know, every day you'll post with some kitten and take photos saying, amazing, look, I'm this great, whatever. But if you do one thing, one thing, which you don't need to exhibit, it therefore becomes a self, relatively selfless thing. It's sacred also. Of course it is. Because this portrayal, right, that Pranam Mukherjee used to do one hour of puja every morning, for the whole of his life, that was one hour where even supposedly his party bosses couldn't call him. And certainly nobody in government could dare to call him. But, you know, he didn't take photographs from every angle of that Mm. and say, Today, Puja, Monday. Mm -hmm. Tuesday, Puja with new lighting. Look, (laughs) fresh hibiscus flowers on Wednesday. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So I'm saying you will only find an anchor if you do something which has no material benefit to you. One material benefit is in terms of a transaction. But remember, external validation itself is a transaction. Right? That's why people really worry. 10 like The
1: story of our lives on, on the, this side of, of the It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it I'm getting
0: less likes. It
1: it, it to you and everyone else, it reflects as like a waxing and waning of your moon, right? Yeah. And and it's so weird because it's your work, right? It's like two it is. real-time updates on your work. And it's not even like a, a labor of love. I know a lot of creators who put in like hours making the perfect reel or the perfect like shot. But it's not to say that a book is better than like a, a, not no, getting into that, but like it's just a brain fart. Sometimes yeah, it's just like, hi guys, mujaya salagra, blah, 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 and it gets a thousand likes. Great. Yeah. But it's 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 not something that you spe- it's you're not Manji the Mountain Man where you spend 27 years, you know, uh, building a mountain road. So I think people take themselves a little too seriously in this.
0: No, no, hugely seriously. And look, I mean, all of us go through this, right? I mean, like I no longer track at a very active level. And thankfully, you know, because of the work and stuff, I can afford not to. On, you know, necessarily how many people read my books or so on and so forth. I truly believe after 11 books that hopefully whatever I write, if it gets published, if it doesn't get rejected, will find an audience. Yeah, that's right? true. Now, that audience doesn't each time have to be some national bestseller. Mm. It may be smaller But that smaller audience for that book may intensely engage with the work in a manner that many bestsellers may not engage. Right. It's
1: better to have a cult than...
0: Right. So it's possible. But I am making the strong argument that that anchor that people seek not only must come from within, it must come or it can only come from activity that does not seek validation or transaction.
1: That you would do for free the rest of your life, even if no one was watching. If
0: nobody was watching, you were getting nothing out of it. Nobody was coming and patting you on the back, saying, amazing, amazing. Nobody was liking some post you made. Nobody was giving you money for it. You were not getting any social prestige. RWA, you chairman for that. You know, so you do that because you wish to do that. It makes mm-hmm. you happy.
1: So at the end of the book, you talk about sorry, the last second, last chapter, yeah. you talk about the mouse charmer. Yeah. Right. And you talk about Modi because yeah. we, we are living in the era of Modi, right? Yes. Yeah, and it's very likely he's going to win the 2024 elections. So from all of the historical figures, you now have someone who's the PM, yeah. right? And, and yeah. it's not like PM of no. the 90s India. No. This is India third largest economy for, I'm not sure what the exact thing is, but like Will it become very soon. Yeah. Statistically, with all the rankings and yes. whatnot the india story yeah this is as powerful as a pm can, could yeah. possibly yeah. be right and he also happens to be a champion of the political hindu movement yes he happens to be someone from the rss fold happens to be you know all the boxes check out as far as this ideology is concerned mm. right mm. what has he then enacted to push this forward
0: i think there are three things i mean i often say if if mr modi did not exist then one would have to invent Mr. Modi. Because, and I'll explain to you why one uh, says this, India needed a sort of figure who would tell us why we are great, why we places where we are not great, we can be great. What will change if we become great? This is important in every nation's history. I think because Mr. Modi comes from a background where he has cultivated a relatively solitary and, you know, in many ways, ascetic life for himself. He has a kind of focus that allows him to do this better than most other people. Uh Because I think he translates these ideas that India is destined for greatness in very concrete terms, and is able to explain to a very large amount of people in India and outside, why India is destined for greatness. In, you know, in IR terms, we would call it the construction of the grand narrative for India. You know, rising powers need grand narratives. One of my upcoming works is India as a civilizational state, where I talk about this, that India needs a grand narrative. And that grand narrative in many ways... Has and is being constructed by Mr. Modi, and he is basing the India's grand narrative by talking about the fact that India had fundamentally many things going for it. See what has happened before Mr. Modi was a lot of our positive national assessment came from the fact that oh, we have a great uh, constitution, you know, which we do, mm-hmm. I agree, and we have non-violence, right? I mean, even though our society is full of violence, but actually there's something to hold up and so on and so forth. Modi ji has been able to take that trajectory of sourcing our ideas of greatness far further into the past. And he then makes this argument that India is destined for greatness because India has these inherent strengths of culture. Mm -hmm. Those inherent strengths are not new. They're not only 70 or 75 years old they come from the very foundation stones of our culture. And those we need to hold up. And that appeals to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Look, you also have to uh, inspire people to greatness. You know, I mean, that is one of the things that Gandhi ji did well. Right. And that's why I have often said in my uh, lectures and writings that the one person who's learned most from Gandhi is Modi. He has understood that India, Indian culture respects a certain kind of asceticness, right? Or asceticism. Um, He, of course, cannot do it in the way Gandhi did it. But he has brought in his own ideas in terms of promoting yoga, you know, promoting all kinds of things. Like, uh, you know, not just in India, but around the world. In terms of the spread of cultural ideas, Now, some of these ideas, some may say are, oh, these are very simple things. And, you know, this has been uh, propagated heavily. Sure. But at the end of the day, we have to begin somewhere. And I think that beginning somewhere of India as a rising power, in a sense, had to happen via somebody. And that's why I say if we didn't have Modi, you know, we would have
1: to invent him. Do you think that India is going to only have um, celibate bachelor ascetic PMs no as no time not, goes on. maybe maybe not. No? maybe not.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, um, absolutely, maybe not. But remember we have a history of solitary figures doing well as prime ministers. You know, Indira Gandhi famously was mm-hmm. a bit of a solitary figure, right. She had a family, but she's always always seen as this you know strong, lone, slightly lonely persona. Even Nehru, by the time he became prime minister, and especially as the years went by, Cut a fairly solitary. I mean, his daughter was the only sort of, you know, mm-hmm. figure. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, Atal Bihari Vajpayee famously is an example. Um, you know, uh, in many ways, uh, even Manmohan Singh, even though he had a structured family, uh, he had, by the time he became prime minister, become in political imagination a slightly aloof, you know, mm. slightly ascetic figure. Uh, you know there was this whole promotion that he personally is not corrupt whatever else happens around him and so on and so forth but no i don't think we always have to have a figure uh, who's a ascetic bachelor uh, without a family but i think in our culture this figure will be revered for much longer than we may like to imagine because we come from a long tradition of sadhus and sons and reverence for people who give up, in a sense, joys of the material world in some shape or form. Hmm. We are a people who respects that. You know, in another country, they may say, oh, well, he doesn't have a family. Then, uh, you know, does he understand all the problems
1: of of having a family? Yeah, look at America. America's always... Family, 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 family. family. The family is always at the forefront of... Including the family dog. Yeah, the family dog. I mean, Rishi Sunak has had his two dogs. But the Obama, Trump, even Biden, everyone's family is is on the forefront of all coverage. So we are not like that.
0: Hmm. We are a country where this entire... See, the other day we were talking about this. Rajniti comes from Raj Dharma. Raj Dharma is the Dharma of a Raja. And what are the best kind of Rajas? They are the philosopher kings, Uh remember. So when we say philosopher kings, we have had a whole history of even, not just the philosopher king, but even kings who are not philosophers, so to speak, seek refuge in the wisdom of these ascetic Mm. characters, right? And I think we as a people respect the fact that, especially in this phase of our national growth, that if a person's full focus is devoted in a sort of unselfish way uh, only towards the nation and nation building, that's a good thing. But remember, this is also a byproduct of the nepotism that we have seen in our country. There is a longer historical reason, but we have also seen a lot of nepotism in our culture, you know, in every field. Why just in politics? You know, you look at today, Bollywoodist or Hindi cinema is talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. But look at Indian business, right? In so many fields, it's These families have captured a lot of space. And I think these are the two reasons. One is historical, the other is more contemporary. Why we as a people perhaps think of this as a, you know, sort of ideal.
1: <coughs> I'm, I'm going to read a few lines from the book Please. that stood out to me. And uh, then we will wrap up this, uh, this amazing, amazing whirlwind of a conversation. I know, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I'm not going to read the entire passages, but yeah. something that stood out to me. What I liked a lot was a few key things. One of the things you mentioned in the book was the Macaulay Mir. An, minute. Yeah. Am I pronouncing the word Macaulay yes, rightly? Yes, yes. Okay. So the Macaulay Minute on in Indian Education, a class, this is what he envisioned when he talked about the education yeah. system that the British or Macaulay gave us, yes. right? A class who may be interpreters <laughs> between us and the millions whom we govern, a class of persons, Indian in blood and colour, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals, and mm-hmm. in intellect, to that class we may leave it to refine the vernacular dialects of the country, to enrich those dialects with terms of science borrowed from the western nomenclature, and to render them by degrees fit vehicles for conveying knowledge to the great mass of the population um The reason I bring this up uh is because I had a havana in my place a few years ago and you know for some reason some uh some pundits and my family were discussing just general stuff. Um and then one pundit randomly stood up and said, You know, all of these problems are happening because of Macaulay. Macaulay ne sab kush kara hai. And I was like, Who is this Macaulay? And so I didn't do too much research beyond knowing that Us Pandit Kisab says Macaulay ne kush kara hai, until I discovered it in your book. That's why I wrote it down. No,
0: look, I mean this is absolutely true. I mean this is the history of uh early Um, you know, British influence in India. The British wanted to create a sort of clerical class, so to speak, you know, who would be slightly more prosperous than the average person and who would be the interlocutors. You know, they would negotiate power between the vast masses and the British masters. And they, in a sense, would be English in thought, taste, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, language, refinement, whatever. They would be the ideal brown sahibs, so to speak, right? And the brown sahibs would, in a sense, help the British govern India. Mm-hmm. And I think Indians took that brown sahib idea a little too far. You know, we all embraced this idea and you know, we were to become brown sahibs and so on and so forth. I think we are finally breaking away from that. I'll give you one example. Do you know when 20, in 2014, when Narendra Modi first came to power and won the election to become prime minister, the Guardian wrote an article an editorial, the Guardian newspaper in England, right? Mm -hmm. Where they said, this may be finally that moment when the British finally leave India. (laughs) Because remember, Pandit Nehru famously said that he was the last Englishman to rule India. It's a very famous statement by uh, Jawaharlal Nehru. He said, I am probably the last Englishman to rule India, to govern India. Because... uh, He was, uh, you know, aristocratic of, uh, you know, uh, in his family life and, you know, from in his pedigree, so to speak. He had essentially uh, been nurtured in a perfect English style, right? By nannies at home and, you know, whatever, governesses and so on and so forth. And then when he went abroad to study in England, he had become, you know, in many ways, the perfect English gentleman, right? Um, So... um, you know, uh, this this is a very deep-seated cultural anxiety among us, right? I think we're finally getting rid of this. Uh, but this is, you know, when they talk about decolonization, this is what it means, you know, that you yeah. shed the trappings of colonial... You no DNA. longer
1: become the interlocutor.
0: No. Today, we look at our country through our own eyes, good, or bad or ugly. Mm-hmm. We are not det- determining our country on the basis of what somebody else says. Think about it. I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard... That an Indian has written a book about America or England, which is really being discussed as the truth about that country?
1: N- almost never. Never. Mm-hmm.
0: Until recently, a large number, number one, the West wrote infinite number of books about them. Every foreign correspondent who would land up in Delhi after two more months would write a book about India. Mm. And we would hold up those books as the example of what India really is. Yeah. Today you try to go to England you know I studied in America mm-hmm. and I remember telling my agent oh, maybe I should write a book about America she immediately said actually I don't think the publishers here would be would, would be interested because what would you understand of America in just one or two years Where were you studying in America at Columbia at Columbia okay yeah So uh, you know it's Think about it. I mean, today, if I go to, uh, you know, say, oh, well, I've studied Oxford, I will write a definitive uh, volume on what England is and what its future
1: should be. Do you think anybody in England would well, care? Well, they will only let it, let you do it if you write it from a brown lens where you shit on the English. Uh,
0: and and in certain for, publications. And number one, they will mostly not let me do it at all. They don't care. Yeah. Even if I managed to do it, nobody would care we were a country where we would take every white-skinned person's opinion on India and hold it up as that, hai. this is the truth mm. about our country. Which is a real, like, I mean, our cultural anxiety was huge. It was really, really huge. And I think we are finally breaking away from it. Uh, and I, for one, could, couldn't be more delighted. Uh, it was high time. Because we really look at our country completely using that lens You know, in being Hindu, I quoted this wonderful African writer who has now passed away. Um, He wrote about how to write about Africa, you know, this famous essay. And he wrote about all the tropes that the Westerners write when they write about Africa. All the Africans have to be native intelligence. There has to be animals roaming around. The dusk has to be... You know, as if there's nothing else apart from that in Africa. Mm -hmm. So it's orientalized at a whole different level. It's the same with us, right? I mean, you know, we had people, you know, people like Wendy Doniger and others who who would come to India and all they would see is... I mean, actually, Wendy Doniger... could not understand anything about Hinduism apart from sex and oppression. These were the only two themes she took away from, like I don't know, five thousand years of Hinduism. Uh, and you know, to be honest, I don't have a problem with that. Also, that's mm-hmm. her opinion. I don't have to accept it. But if you tell me that that is the final authoritative word on my faith, then I have a
1: problem. Then I have to write back in response. Yeah. Hmm.
0: I mean, then I have to really say that, look, I mean, actually, no, let an Indian write about what India really is. In fact, let hundreds of Indians write about it and Mm -hmm. then come to some common consensus, if at all. So we had become very determined only to accept the white man's gaze or the Western gaze on what India is.
1: Yeah. Also, I think when code switching goes away... Yeah. From from how we speak our yeah. English. I mean, this happened to me when I was trying to fit into America. Yeah. I acquired that accent, and I really, really enjoyed when some of my American peers would come and say to me, "You know, which state are you from?" I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a sign of pride." <laughs> and then I had a little spiritual encounter, and I decided to go back to that Indian tongue, or at least yeah. find whatever it was and blend sure. it with who I had who become. Sure. And I spoke to my uh, housemates after several years over a Zoom call. And I was surprised to notice that I didn't code switch at, code switch at all this time. And I mean, maybe it's a very small thing. but No, it, no,
0: it, but these it, things matter. And these things, these small things, they're not small at all. They give you a much wider idea of what's going on with that person, hmm.
1: you know, and what's going on in society. So the fact that even people, uh, Indians who study abroad, if they can look... Accent is a very subjective thing, yeah. but if you if you feel comfortable that the ecosystem in your country is now supporting, yeah, uh, an Indian who is truly independent and sovereign in international spaces to hold yeah. their ground as someone who has equal or perhaps even better stature, sure, as opposed to I'm going to accommodate the the white man or the Western man um, in speech in language and when. I'm too shy to sh- show my competence. Let me be over hospitable mm-hmm. because I'm doing some service uh, because I know my culture is to be hospitable. When those sort of things go away and when you proudly proclaim who you are and mm-hmm. stand your ground, that's a time when, I mean, I really think that's that's where this revolution, this political Hindu identity also goes abroad to the diaspora.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, this is a very important point and I think uh, this is what cultural confidence is all about, you know, uh, where you don't feel bad that, you know, your leaders are not speaking in English abroad. Why should they? Mm. Does the Japanese, uh, the, do, do leaders from Japan speak in English? Putin outside? never speaks in English. Does Putin ever speak in, does the Chinese speak in any other language but Chinese? Uh, you know, they don't care. And, uh, you know, why should we? Um, in fact, I think it's great that more and more ambassadors in India are now trying to learn Hindi. Yeah,
1: yeah, You know,
0: all these years, we have always, you know, judged people saying, is the hai ki And so on and so forth. You know, our cultural confidence was really low. I think we are rebuilding. Look, this will take time. It's just the beginning of the journey. I would say mm-hmm. at least 20, 30 years more for our cultural confidence to come to a particular point. And all of this only comes with prosperity. You know, no poor country has cultural confidence.
1: Yeah. This mm.
0: Ye can ho sakta. You know, uh, you can't have cultural confidence and be extremely poor. That's just not a combination that works well. We actually tried this combination after independence. That, oh, no, no, no we are, uh, you know, non-aligned and this, that and the other. TK, I mean, it may be worked in a few places, but broadly it does not work and it cannot work for a long time. People call you a bluff that, you know, you have a country full of, you know, you're asking for aid from us constantly. Mm. What cultural confidence? A beggars cannot have cultural confidence, right? <laughs> You know, you know, beggars have no cultured confidence or any confidence for that matter. So therefore, once we start being a beggar, you know, now we're a net provider of aid. Uh, not really? A net, yeah, yeah. India we send now, foreign aid to
1: other countries? Yeah,
0: yeah. We're a net net provider of aid. We are no longer a net recipient of aid. We send out more aid
1: than we receive. That's crazy. I, ne- I never thought I would see that day.
0: It's true. It's happened. And see, the thing is, uh, even, the, you know, the, sometimes in British Parliament, they say, oh, we're still giving aid to India they are giving scholarships and aid to India not because we need that money. They are giving it so that those scholarships help them access new generations of exciting Indian minds who they might recruit for the growth of their country. We're not asking them for aid? No, no, not at all. We are not begging to anybody for aid anymore. Not at all. What we now ask for is technology transfer, Hmm. which I think is absolutely relevant. And we are very correctly saying... If climate transition has to happen, then the global north has to give money because you're asking the global south to make this transition, which is entirely transformative economy. How will we do it overnight? Hmm. You have polluted the atmosphere for decades and centuries. So you give, you know, equity. We call it climate equity and climate finance. You provide the climate finance to the global south. You know, there has to be equity in this. One day you cannot wake up one morning and say, "No, no, now everybody change." Are
1: yeah, yeah. Because I, I think I, I heard some some uh, intellectual talk about this, where he said that it's very unfair for America to suddenly wake up and say everyone go green when, yeah. when you've had your industrialization and now Correct. you're at that level where you feel like we must be more sustainable. Absolutely. But in India and China are trying to grow.
0: And how will we feed our people? How will we pull millions of people out of poverty if we don't do large-scale manufacturing? I'll give an example. Right. We have to do large-scale manufacturing. People used to say, oh, you know, actually the bus has passed, the bus has passed. That's rubbish. Hmm. We are we have shown with mobile phone manufacturing no buses passed. Buses are constantly coming and going. So uh, we barely had mobile phone manufacturing in our country. We have now become second largest manufacturing. I mean, I have seen two years ago, we barely had toys exports. Look at our toys exports today. So we need that manufacturing to ensure that millions of people transition and they have a livelihood and so on and so forth. Now for you to come and tell us that no, 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 you can only do this like this. Even today, our per capita emission is a fraction of a fraction of what's there in the West. Mm. Even today. In fact, if all Indians began to consume like Americans, there would be no world left. So therefore, in order for us to make a transition, we want to make a transition,
1: but the global North must help the global South. I mean, this is... Thank God the uh, Big Mac didn't make it to the McDonald's Indian menu. (laughs) (laughs) We were very happy with those really small burgers. One last thing before... before And about cultural
0: confidence. We are the only country where we have forced McDonald's to produce vegetarian (laughs) burgers. That's true.
1: That is true. That is an anomaly across the world. Um... One word you mentioned yeah. um, uh, was Indo Futurism. Yes, one of my new projects. Yes, yeah, new projects, amazing. Yeah. So I have a little glimpse to offer you. Um, sure. One of my friends, Madhav Kohli, he's on Twitter. Yeah, he he's a big AI artist. And when uh, Dali and all of these things were coming around, now he's mid journey. Maybe
0: you have seen his work. Yeah,
1: so he got in a lot of controversy because of uh, he he let AI make uh, representations of. Uh, one person from every state and, and they, oh yeah that's yeah, how yeah, that's yeah. how i've seen his work yes. yeah yeah so he he went to college with me um he made a one thread of indian temples of the future and they were it, it, they looked like like religious space cities it was Amazing. so beautiful to see them i'll see this huh? so so when i read indo futurism yeah. that's the word that came to my mind yes so when you talk about indo futurism yeah. is it did. that spans yeah. so
0: i'm writing a book about this it's called indo futurism I am making the argument that while we talk about India's technological prowess today, and it is true, India is taking leaps of technological prowess. The UPI is one great example, digital health, this, that and the other. It is not true that this is a rare phenomenon in India. Ki abhi hmm. If you look at the broad span of Indian history, technological leaps were always part of India's history. Allow me to explain. Even today, we don't know how the Brihadeshwara temple was built. No one can explain to you. How did they build that? How did the Cholas build that? Even today, very close to where we, you and I are sitting in Delhi and CR, in the National Capital Region, no one can tell you how did they get the iron which never rusts in the Qutub Midar. Mm. We don't know. We have no answers. Right? Let me give you another example. If you read the history of the Crusades, right? there's a lot of talk about the sword of Saladin Mm. made of Damascus steel. Damascus steel did not come from Damascus. Damascus steel came from today, uh, from an area which we today called Andhra Pradesh and Tamil Nadu, from Telugu people. In India, they invented a kind of, by beating steel, a kind of a kind of composition of steel, which would be so supple that you could bend it—a sword—and mm. yet so powerful that it could cut a human being half.
1: I, have you seen the video where they compare a katana with the with a bendable Indian sword? Yes. Have you yes. seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have yeah. you seen how the v- reviewer is saying? I'm not too sure about the bendy quality yeah. of this, but the cut from that sword is much better on the watermelon. Exactly.
0: So, it was it was made of wood steel? what is known as wood steel, right? We still don't know how to make that steel. So India always had these leaps of faith. You know, one of the videos I uh, you know, made with a friend was on Ujjain. You know, long before... I just the, came from
1: Ujjain. The Mahakaleshwar that's temple. That's right. Yeah. But
0: why is the... So here's the question to ask you. Why do you think the Mahakaleshwar temple is in Ujjain?
1: Uh, I have no idea. I just got there on a, on a night trip and came. So,
0: Mahakal is the Lord of Time, like Shiva is also the Lord of Time. Mahakal, you know, Kal is time, right? Now, is it a coincidence that that temple sits in Ujjain, through which passed the Ujjain Meridian, which before the Greenwich Meridian is the center of the world? Is the center the the, the focal point of time? So long before the Greenwich meridian came into being through which we measure global time, time used to be measured using the Ujjain meridian. And is it a coincidence, I ask you, that the temple of Mahakal, the Mahakal form of Shiva, happens to be in Ujjain? What does that say about our culture to you? Wow. So I make the argument that we had a history of understanding technology and science. We had a long history of understanding technology and science. You know, uh, in India, of course, people are mad. Let's talk about rhinoplasty, okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you know rhinoplasty, which is taking skin and grafting, you know, no skin, using mm-hmm. grafting using no. That surgery, the skin surgery using grafting, happened first in southern India. Where did I learn this? Not in India. I was at Columbia University. I was looking at some material. I suddenly found an entry that spoke in detail about this. That's this kind of skin grafting surgery first happened in India. So technology and Indo-futurism talks about how we are not technologically advanced today. We have a culture of technological advancement. It's just that we have forgotten all about this. Mm. We don't know anything about this. We were never taught about this. So cultural confidence that we were talking about does not come from thin air. It comes from understanding your culture. And to understand your culture means to understand these things. So therefore, my humble request is that before people go and tweet, they should read. You know, I keep saying (laughs) read before you tweet, you know uh you know and that's where the cultural confidence will come from and that's why you know all of us are uh doing exciting work uh in our different fields uh to make it happen
1: i'm excited to be an indo-futurist i, I had no idea i mean i when i went to a gen i heard about some taxi driver told me you know to, not to talk about taxi driver would journalism so i didn't i took what he said with a grain of salt but he he said that uh um, sorry, my bad. It was my dad. My dad who said that. Do you know Ujjain is the center of India? It's the midpoint of India. That's what he yeah. said. But we didn't take it to as being the midpoint of the world. Uh, but that's very interesting. Um, so there's there was something called the Ujjain Meridian. Hmm. So so may, maybe maybe I think I think what I also took from this is maybe people should look up stuff and read rigorously. And and I think yeah. one of the reasons people don't uh, is because it, it the. the there's a fringy political flavor to all of these things, which deters yeah. people from engaging with scholarship. But you know, this fringy, I mean, here's the thing. Maybe
0: there is a fringy element, but there's a fringy element to everything. Right. There was a fringy element in the past also.
1: Yeah.
0: I am saying that actual people who are interested are engaging. Much more should be done. Everybody cannot read books, some people may not be interested. Now we have lots of platforms. There could be video. There could be conversations like this. There could be live events and talks. There could be many things. Mm -hmm. But a a book format is an interesting format because it stays. You can go back and refer to it, right? You can put footnotes and endnotes and sources to it, right? In case people want to check. But overall, I think we should create much more material, including many more books Mm -hmm. to ensure that at least these generations and future generations have some idea of where we come from. So when they reach that point in life where they begin to ask, who am I really? You know, Hinduism has only three questions. Only three questions worth answering, according to Hinduism. If you read all of Hindu thought and philosophy, broadly, there are three questions, only three questions worth answering. Who am I? What do I want? And what is my purpose? Now, most of us, are going to be stuck in question number one, all our lives. Because Mm -hmm. remember, that changes. If I asked you, who who are you at the age of five? Very different from when you're 10, very different from when you're 15, and very different from when you're 27, like you Mm -hmm. are today, right? So it changes at various phases of your life. Now, of course, people who are enlightened go on to ask, you know, what is my purpose, Uh, and so on and so forth. But who am I, what do I want, and what is my purpose are the only three things. And when people begin to ask that, there should be enough material for them to go to, to that can help them answer that question.
1: Well, I hope, I hope that people can get Soul and sword: The History of Political Hinduism by Singh Gupta, who's sitting uh, across me to answer that question or to start that journey. Right. And of course, you've written several other books. Where can people find this book if they want to get it? On any major bookshop. And of course, there's Amazon. Okay. Amazing. And I just want to say, I think the conversation was delayed for a right reason. I I call this providence, but because uh, the context for today was amazing and and it was absolutely my pleasure to have a conversation with you today.
0: It was great fun. It's uh, definitely one of the most expansive conversations I've done. I've done many of them, but I think um, you were able to touch upon many, many themes that I think are of common interest. And I really enjoyed having such an expansive and yet detailed conversation. And I thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And uh,
1: where can people follow your work beyond the books? Is there a Twitter or a LinkedIn? Twitter,
0: yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I'm on Twitter as at Gupta, on LinkedIn, of course, mm-hmm. on Facebook, uh, and of course on Instagram in mean, everything at and Gupta. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time.